You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. Welcome to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, another episode. I am Large William. Across the border from me is my partner in crime, Sammy. Yeah, the podcaster on the go all the time. On the move. It's like speed. Pop quiz. You can't stop. As we said uh, pre-show, pre you know, the, the new GGTMC tagline, same taint, different tinge. That's right, man. That's uh... <laughs> Same taint, different tinge. <laughs> Take that how you will. Take it any which way you can. Yeah. Might be, uh, any might which be way, but uh, loose. Tagline for the month of July, now that I think about it. Yeah, it certainly will be. <laughs> but you got something very fun coming up in July, not to uh, digress here, but it's uh, we'll talk about that later on once all the uh, all the uh, the sweat has dripped onto the floor. We'll, we'll be talking about that. So this episode, though, uh, is episode 336. It is sponsored very kindly by our one of our sponsors, Olive uh, Olive Films, and it was again my turn to pick. We had essentially taken a different route in terms of programming, unlike our Diabolic sponsorship, where it's one and one. We decided to go two and two. Um, we had picked for this episode. I picked two films I'd never even heard of, but there was some certainly some allure to them. Uh, chronologically speaking, the first film we're going to be covering is Taxi for Tobruk, 1961 film directed by Denis, Denis, no, Denis uh, uh, de la Patellere, uh, yeah. directed by Michel Oduard, Oduard and René Avard, and starring some familiar faces, Hardy Kruger, uh, the mighty Lino Ventura, yeah. uh, Maurice, where is he here? Maurice Biro, and of course, Charles Aznavar. And a few other, and of course, German Cobos. So, yeah, and it's uh, kind of a guys on a mission film, and we'll get into that. Uh, and next up, I guess, kind of this film, this this episode is French in a lot of ways because the yeah. the star of uh, the next film is is an icon the world over, and more for his work. Ooh, yeah, didn't take long for that to happen. <laughs> for that no, it to, didn't. Um, is uh, 1974's Shanks. 
And uh, Shanks is a William Castle-directed film, his last film, and stars the legendary Marcel Marceau. So it's... Yeah. Uh, in the in the interest of being the greatest podcaster of all time, I'm going to do the entire review in mom. Exactly. So I don't know exactly. how that's going to go over. We'll see. And I am going to toggle uh, between German and French for the Taxi for Tobra review. <laughs> yeah. We're going to alienate every listener possible. So. Yes, precisely. <laughs> Precisely. So uh, it's going to be an interesting, interesting show, certainly. Two films that we'd never heard of um, with some pretty interesting ensembles. Sammy, what have you been watching since uh, we last spoke? I've been watching a few things since we last spoke. I missed last week. We had a uh, storm in the uh, the area that took out the power, but uh, we also know it was, uh, like you said, it was that arm wrestling match. at uh, Tri-state you know. rules. <laughs> yeah, it was in it to win it. You know, if I if I if yeah. I won, you know, we hit the power button and knocked that power on the grid. So I slammed the guy. I slammed Eastman down. That's right. Man. All right. Uh, and so you I, were the you know, winner. Yeah, <laughs> I did check out uh, the two films that you guys covered last week: Metal Skin, which I'd never seen, and of course Long Weekend, which I'd seen before. And uh, just kind of wanted to get out there. You know, what are my thoughts on both of those? Not reviews, but just you know. Long weekend, I like quite a bit, and uh, I've always have kind of, you know, in my rescore of the film, I gave it a seven and a half. I haven't listened to what you guys gave it yet, so. Davey was, uh, I think, an 8.5. I was a 7.25 or 7.5. Mm-hmm. Okay, right around the same part as me. Yep. And then Metal Skin, I gave a 7.75. I really like Metal Skin a lot. Never had that. that came out of nowhere for me, so. I was around 7.5, I think. Yeah, yeah, so good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Quite enjoyed those two films. Anyway, but, uh, other than that, I watched uh, documentaries, a lot of documentaries, man. But I watched a few uh, films as well. So I watched Living with Lincoln. This is a film about the family that uh, curated the most extensive collection of photographs and Lincoln memorabilia. Uh, and where you get most of your stuff. I mean, I think like the guy that originally, you know, he, they, that's where they got the image for the $5 bill in the States and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, pretty fascinating because you know these people were obsessed with you know lincoln and it kind of gets into their personal lives a little bit and how obsessive it became and were they kentucky based or no uh no i don't believe so i don't believe so i think they were maybe illinois based i don't know but uh you know he was kentucky born and uh somewhat raised but i think he also was in uh, illinois as well so uh interesting yeah like i said he he was born not too far from where i live actually so i'm the uh the keeper of the Lincoln mythos. That's right. Man. <laughs> Lincoln <Log. laughs> GGTMC. <laughs> uh, they had a rewatch of uh, Winnebago Man, uh, which is just, you know, I just wanted to watch something that I knew I liked. I was just in that kind of mood. So, you know, I felt like rewatching Winnebago Man. It's a great documentary. It's fun. It's very silly, but it's also it kind of interesting. It kind of came right before the, the crest, the wave had really reached its peak with kind of these kind of documentaries, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a good one. It is. Uh, I watched, uh, let's see how many more documentaries I got here. One, two, three, four more. Nice. I watched uh, Field Full of Secrets. This is a weird one. This is, uh, I read the synopsis of this, and I can't remember what it is exactly off my head. But basically, it's a guy that investigates crop circles in England. And, you know, he, you know he, he's really into it and stuff. And at some point, he's contacted by a transgender kind of amateur scientist who wants to build a spaceship because he kind of figures that that crop circles are blueprints for spaceships and he kind of goes down that road sounds <laughs> so, like um safety not guaranteed a little bit <laughs> yeah it does doesn't it it might it might be based on that a little bit but anyway it's, it's it was interesting 
I really wish there was more about the transgender amateur kind of engineer guy because he was really fascinating. Uh, just, you know, a chain smoking. I mean, he just sm- like constantly smoking. And uh, just he just seemed like a real interesting uh, person slash character. So, but it's worth a watch. It's on Hulu Plus for those who want to watch it. I mean, if you're into that kind of thing, I, you know, uh, I'm not really... I mean, I think crop circles are cool, but I mean, it's not like I, you know, sit out there and wait for them and stuff. They, they do some interesting stuff in the documentary. I got to say, there's the one point where they're actually out waiting for a crop circle. I mean, they they actually go the, the extent of going to a field, and they're going to prove that people make crop circles, and they're going to wait until they see people, and they're looking one way, looking another way, looking another way. They wake up the next morning, and there's this gigantic formation, and they never saw anybody. <laughs> So, I don't know. Take what you will. It is the magic of film. So you know you could you could sell that either way you want to sell it. But pretty crazy stuff when you think about how perfectly like measured and everything else they are. It's pretty pretty insane. And they do have a, a hoaxer there, and he shows you how to do it. And I'm sitting there thinking, if these kind of magnificent things can be done by one by two guys with these boards, then these guys should be considered artists. Yeah, no kidding. Because <laughs> I mean, it's insane what some of these things do. Um, watched another one called Tales of the Grim Sleeper. This is a documentary about the gentleman that was arrested, I think, about four or five years ago uh, in L.A., South Central L.A., uh, tied to about, well, he's tied to at least 10 murders, but potentially could be tied to hundreds of uh, prostitutes and young women in the South Central Los Angeles area. Pretty grim stuff. This is, an, I think, Nick Broomfield, I think it's his name. It's one of his documentaries. Oh, yeah. So he, He's kind of front and center in it and stuff, but uh, this is one of his better ones. And, uh, yeah, this is pretty pretty grim. And, yeah, no, you know, I mean, you you got to be in a certain kind of mood to watch this kind of stuff. So, you know, just be prepared because there's, you know, some crime scene stuff and, you know, just some kind of sad, you know, parents, you know, losing their kids. I mean, it's just that's rough. So just very strange and uh, pretty grim, uh, no pun intended. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, but it is good. It is a fascinating look into the man, a, a look of a, like a sociopath, and uh, yeah, pretty fascinating. Uh, did a couple of fiction films. Watched Tusk. Now I watched Tusk. Kevin Smith's Tusk. I watched it sheerly out of curiosity. I just I yeah. couldn't help myself. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit curious. Yeah, it just it's so it's such a wacky idea, and I remember. Him, talk, I remember reading about some magazine. Some there was a podcast that he did, and he talked about this story he had heard, and that he was going to make a film out of it and stuff. And I remember the story and stuff. But anyway, it's just such a wacky idea that I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to see what he does with it. Now, the first half of this film is maybe one of the most obnoxious things I've ever watched. I've never thought I I may have heard the word podcaster or podcast in the first half of this film like a thousand times. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't he kidnap a podcaster? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. Justin Long plays a podcaster who makes six figures a year, so this is total fiction. Well, Uh, I don't know. We know know someone that that, uh, pulls that six-figure salary. It's a rock star. So so uh, uh, Justin Long is that character, and he's played to be obnoxious, but he's so obnoxious. And I'm not really a big fan of Justin Long. I really don't. He really doesn't do anything for me. I can take him or leave him, but more often than not, I'd rather leave him. He's yeah. not, a real, not really, you know, there's nothing really appealing about him to me. Uh, I don't think he's funny, and I don't, and I don't really think he's interesting. So he does have a nice mustache in this film, should be said. Nice. And him and Haley Joe Osmond have a podcast, and it's called The Not C 
party. N-O-T dash S-E-E party. And, of course, when they say their sign-off on the thing, they say, the Nazi party. Oh, of course. And that's supposed to be funny, but it, it's not funny. Yeah. But the thing is, it, it's, it's played to not be funny. And in the in the in the realm of playing it not to be funny, it comes off as even more obnoxious than trying to be funny. So it's really, it's really confused. This movie's a total mess. I mean, it's a total mess. It does have a few redeeming features. Obviously, Michael Parks is in it, so that's yep. always a redeeming. He's always feature. good. Yeah, he's always good. He's a little wacky in this one. Uh, he really goes for it, to say the least. The very least. Uh, a scene of him swimming with. Uh, and, well, never mind. I don't want to give it away. Some people might not have seen it. Some people might not have heard of it. So I don't. I don't know. Um, and then a special appearance by a rather large, uh, movie star, gigantic movie star, as a matter of fact, one of the biggest movie stars in the world is in here playing a kind of a, uh, Quebecois, uh, policeman and, uh, really, really milking that Quebecois, uh, you know, uh, angle. And there's a lot of Canadian humor in here because Smith... You know, he likes Canada a lot. He's got a lot of, yeah. yeah, he's got a lot of Canadian friends. He's got a fascination with, you know, he's, he's, in, he's into Canada quite a bit. And uh, there's a couple of good lines in here. You know, you can't do, you can't don't, you know, stuff like that. And there's a really funny scene with, uh, involving Canada and a border guard. It's, uh, <laughs> that is pretty funny, i got to say. Oh, they, they say we're nice. It's not nice. We're just pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, just some silly kind of stuff like that. But it, you also kind of feel like Smith's kind of clueless. As to what a Canadian person really is like. Yeah, a lot of broad strokes. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's very broad. But uh, kind of silly. But, you know, if I had to rate it, I'd give it like a 5, 5.25. Yeah. But it does have some... I tell you, it's one of the more unique films I've seen in a while. It's certainly... It's it's pretty original in its ideas and some of its, uh, <laughs> some of its execution, i got to say. Yeah, it was out there, man. He's definitely smoking a lot more pot nowadays, thereby. <laughs> uh, I watched Big Eyes, Tim Burton film. Oh, yes. Is this out now? Yeah, well, yeah, it's out to rent and stuff, and uh, I, I wanted to check it out. I mean, I like Christoph Watts a lot. I like Amy Adams a lot. I like Tim Burton. You know, Absolutely. I, I always liked him. I like him quite a bit. Um, True story. The, uh, great, surely, but it is pretty good. Christoph Waltz kind of keeps that string along of playing these kind of uh, very interesting yet damaged individuals in a way. Uh, he's both likable and very unlikable in this movie. Matter of fact, this movie gets a lot darker than I thought it did. I, I, I expected, I didn't expect it to get as dark as it did. So I was kind of, uh, surprised by that. Uh, it's not riveting. I don't think, but it like is seven, 7.25 territory. Yeah. I'd say seven would be as high as I'd go. Okay. Good. It's good. I, I I still enjoy Tim Burton when he's doing Tim Burton. I know a lot of people are tired of that. And there's a few moments in here of that, but uh, this is mostly a straight-up kind of Tim Burton film. Uh, more, you know, it feels almost Oscar Beatty in some ways. I mean, the performances are great, though. So I, I say Oscar Beatty, but you know what? Christoph Waltz and Amy Adams are on top of their game here. So it's really good performances from them and a few others. So it's worth a watch, sure. Nice. I watch uh, with the wife, I think. Yeah, I watched uh, Cobain Montage of Heck, which premiered on uh, HBO last night because um, they picked it up, and uh, I'm sure it's out there making the rounds now, but uh, it's brand new. Really, really good. Uh, very well done. Uh, Brett Morgan, I think, is the director on it, and uh, he did The Kid Stays in the Picture and uh, a couple other documentaries that have been really good over the last 10 years. 
he does an amazing job with this one by using like a lot of audio. He found this like 200 this box of audio tapes that Cobain had made where he, you know, would speak his kind of psychosis and speak, you know, some of his stuff and song ideas and all that kind of thing. And like a diary really type thing? It. Well, like cassette tapes. You know, it was like an audio diary of sorts or? Yeah, sort of, sort of. But, you know, Cobain, Cobain was one of these, well, I don't know if you know this, but some people know this. Uh, Cobain was really, he, he wrote down almost everything. Like he was really obsessed with uh, keeping all of his thoughts written down and, mm-hmm. And uh, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot about him. If you read into a lot of his stuff, there's a lot about him out there. Uh, and you can kind of get into his mind a little bit. But anyway, they found these audio tapes, like in a shoebox. Um, like, you know, because Courtney Love and some of these other people, they, you know, or if Courtney Love and the daughter have possession of all this personal stuff. And I don't even know if they even really knew that he had recorded all this stuff over the years. I mean, this goes all the way back to his youth. I mean, there's some truly heartbreaking stuff in here because you can hear this, you know, two and three year old boy who, you know, he's, he ended up being a child of divorce, which that can go one way or the other. You can either come out of that stronger or you come out of that for the worse. Um, unfortunately for Cobain, he came out of, out of the worse and, you know, he started heading down dark roads and it's really sad when you hear a two or three year old boy full of life, not knowing what the world's going to throw at him yet or what they're going to throw at the world. And then you get to the 27 year old man who's at the very bottom. You know what I mean? So yeah, no kidding. Now I didn't know he had been. You know what that almost sounds like is—is is it Tarnation? That documentary from a few years ago. Mm, yeah, remember that? Is it? I, so he was recording stuff. If I understand you correctly. Cobain was recording audio of himself at like two, three, four years old. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Well, his mom and his mom and I think her aunt were kind of. Well, maybe not his mom, but I know his aunt when kind of an amateur musician, and they kind of had recording equipment around. He kind of became obsessed with playing instruments and kind of stuff like that that stuff's around you know kids will kind of become fascinated with it i have a guitar at my house so my son's kind of fascinated with it and you know it makes a sound you get a very natural reaction to music right so mm-hmm. uh, cobain just kind of took to it immediately and you know inarguably or arguably depending on your taste in music you know uh, genius or not he's type of this he was type of this kind of this, this harbinger of this sound they kind of came out of nowhere and kind of smacked people across the face. And this happens every now and then in popular culture where, you know, a musician, a song comes out and just changes the whole landscape, right? Oh, so yeah. you just never really know when it's going to happen and who it's going to happen to. The thing about this documentary, I, I was worried there wouldn't be a whole lot of new stuff in there. But the thing about it was that, that the audio tapes were really fascinating, sometimes creepy. He would play with vocal effects a lot. So if you used to watch this movie on like mushrooms and stuff, you'd be man. Trust me, the animation stuff it would fuck you up. It's it's like uh, and this week another documentary with a lot of audio tapes. Oh, what was his name? That really that recluse musician. Oh yeah, I can't remember what his name was. Uh, was Scott Walker? No, it was like uh, fuck. And his stuff almost had a creepy sound, and he was publishing these albums, self-publishing them. And oh, the devil! Was the devil and Daniel Johnson? Maybe? No, it was something no. like uh, somebody else, maybe. Yeah. I'll, anyway, I'll, I mean, anyway, throughout time, there's always kind of been guys like this and stuff. And Cobain was interesting because he wanted to be huge. Mm-hmm. What a lot of people don't know is he wanted to be huge. He wanted to be a rock star. He wanted all that, but once he got it, he also didn't want it. So Not equipped to handle it. Yeah, he wasn't equipped to handle it. I mean, you got, people got to remember he killed himself at 27. At 27, I may have made the first right decision of my entire life. Yeah, uh, I had not made very many good decisions up to that point. <laughs> so, so you know, I think to myself, twenty seven is really young uh, to have as much as he had, 
and to do as much as he did in that short amount of time and how fleeting it is. And then, you know, bringing the child into the mix, uh, all this craziness. And there's some really, there's some really heartbreaking stuff in this, in this documentary. It'll make some people mad. It made me mad sometimes, but it also at times made me realize that there's, it's, it's just inevitable for some people that, 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 that they're going to, they're, they are going to burn out and fade away. They are, they, they, they are just going to, they're just this kind of, they're like Haley's Comet, right? They just, they kind of come every now and then and they just kind of shake things up and they disappear again for a while. So mm-hmm. it's just inevitable, I think. Uh, I'm kind of a believer in that kind of stuff. I don't really have a faith, but I kind of believe that the human condition kind of does that, that we have these moments that we see in popular culture. Elvis Presley, uh, Quentin Tarantino, we talked about him the other, me and you were talking about him the other night and how he kind of changed the landscape or, and even if he's not remembered for anything else, that's probably what he'll be always be remembered for. And you name it. I mean, we can name, you know, Muhammad Ali. We can name uh, five or six people probably off the top of our Absolutely. heads. Right? So, Joe Namath. I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Sammy and Will. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we won't uh, burn out or fade away. That's right. Uh, it's long and strong. It's really good. Really good. It's one of the best films of the year so far for me. So, we've got a long way to go, but right now it's right at, there, right at the top. So, so i got to check it out. Yeah, and The Kill Team, I uh, just recently watched The Kill Team, which is a movie about, uh, well, about war and about some guys that were in the war and they were in a platoon and they started killing people for kind of, you know, fun. And they were making, you know, trophies out of fingers and, I don't know. This, documentary? It, it, yeah, it's a documentary. It's depressing. It's, and, uh, yeah. yeah, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not going to put you in a great mood if you watch it. It's kind of pretty sad, really. Pathetic, sad, disturbing. Sadly, not surprising. So, but it's good. It's good. It's uh, not great, but it's certainly good. It's only eighty minutes long too. So, you know, check nice. it out. If you want to go down that road, yeah, you can check it out. And I'm not going to say, you know, one way or another, your politics and how it affects you, but it might affect some people more than others. Sure, yeah. Because that can be a touchy subject. I just wanted to, you know. I'm just an onlooker, in my opinion, when it comes to that. I don't uh, speak my way I think about it, but uh, it is pretty dark and pretty disturbing stuff. But that's it. I watched a lot of Sons of Anarchy, too. <laughs> yeah, so you're going strong with that. So are, yeah, are, you, that. are you, if you watch the show completely, or you're not quite at the end yet? Of what, Anarchy? Yeah. I've watched three seasons of Sons of Anarchy. And oh, I've heard for some reason you've watched more. Now, there's seven seasons, and I've watched three. They're, they're 12 to 13-episode uh, seasons, so they're a little longer. So it takes a little while to dig through them. And, and I like – it's a great show to binge on because they really know how to cliffhang you. Yeah. It's one of the great examples of a show that knows how to put a cliffhanger on. I mean, mm-hmm. it really puts some serious cliffhangers on. And uh, I just felt like, you know, kind of going back and checking it out and stuff and – it was fun to kind of go through that uh, season pretty quick. I finished Daredevil too as well, and it was uh, pretty solid. I got to say, I quite enjoyed the season. It got better as it went. So. We're through episode five of Daredevil right now, and it is quite good. But I'll say this: I don't think it's, you know, and I think maybe it's unfair comparison, but I feel like Game of Thrones is so far ahead of everything else. Um, oh, but again, yeah, no, no, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of um, context because I don't watch a lot of TV, but mm-hmm. I feel like. Daredevil at times, at times, looks a bit cheap. Yeah. At times, which I'm willing to overlook because it's not really the point. Um, some of the heavies I feel aren't great. Like the Russians weren't very believable for me. <laughs> they would be very baby faced, you know, kind of classic yeah. thing of young, kind of heartthrobby guys. Um, 
they're trying to butch them up, which doesn't really work for me. Uh, a little but, bit of Euro trash in there. Yeah, Euro trash kind of, you know, fur coats with no shirts on style. And, you know, <laughs> speaking of Joe Namath, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he was Euro trash before it was cool. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but the main thing is, yeah, Charlie Cox is tremendous as Daredevil. And, and you know, we're, we'll stick on. And I, and I know there's been some discussion of D'Onofrio and Kingpin. I, I love what he's done with uh, Kingpin making him kind of vulnerable. Cause I always feel like the scenes with him yeah. and his love interest, they're always to me feel like you're kind of on eggshells and they're very tense. <laughs> yeah. Like man, yeah. is he going to say something wrong and he's going to fucking snap or what's going to happen? That, that, that develops more and gets more intense. So you'll, you'll probably enjoy that. Cause yeah, he, he keeps you on edge. I like the Nafrio's choice of the way he decided to play Wilson. Fisk, me too, man. Is, it's almost painful for him to talk. It is. It feels very much to be. He feels like a man that's not comfortable in his own skin. Yeah. Um, and and he, of course, that ending to episode four, I'm sure you enjoyed. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was intense, man. Very <laughs> gooey. And, oh, man. And episode five opens with a, a pressure wash at a car wash. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty yeah. nasty, I got to say. No, it is. But this is that when you get a good actor, they can flesh things out and, and make some decisions and inhabit a role in a way that we wouldn't maybe anticipate otherwise. So I like him. Cox is great. Uh, Rosario Dawson. It just it sets my heart a flutter. So mm-hmm. uh, I could watch her. I could watch her read the phone book. Uh, yeah. 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 I could watch her. I could watch her make paper angels. I could watch yes. her do anything. So yeah, absolutely. And I do like Charlie Cox. Charlie Cox has a nice, he's uh, great. You know, he is, he is good. He was good on the boardwalk empire and I'm glad he's, he's kind of developed into a star. Uh, so that's good for him because, uh, he had one of the more interesting episode, uh, characters on the last like two or three seasons of Boardwalk Empire. So that's cool. He's the one I'll, I'll watch based on the strength of this, you know, because you need him mm-hmm. to be a lot of things. So oh, that's cool. Um, my movie week was very heavy on the front end, and then as the week went on, I got you. You, you and I know. I mean, we didn't get to the show. Lack of time. Nice weather. Oh, I forgot. To, oh, I, I forgot to. I, I rewatched Room Two Three Seven because you watched it. Man, it was. I did. I I mentioned. Oh, I mentioned it, but I, you didn't get to hear what I thought of it. I loved it. Yeah, I love it. I loved it too. I think it made my top thirty. Like, it would uh, make my top years. thirty. It would make my top. I mean, a lot of people didn't like it, and to me, I no, thought not. Not only didn't like it, they hated, hated it. it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you loved it because I felt like I felt like it was made with style. Which was great. Yeah. I love the addition of like the demons footage they cut in. Yeah. <laughs> it was a nice kind of, you know, yeah. really cool choice. I think it really speaks to people's interpretation and fixation and fascination with art and how subjective the medium is and how malleable it is. Yeah. It's testament also to the genius and the density and complexity of Stanley Kubrick and his work. Yeah. So I loved it. Yeah, I loved it quite a bit, too. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, I think people, I don't know what people wanted from it. I don't know if they wanted, uh, you know, a, a deep analysis of Kubrick's film. I think that's there, but I think it's there from... For many people. and For, many. for people who are looking for those kinds of things. And uh, that's what any art should do. Any art should have you looking for something. Even if it is a crazy conspiracy theory. Sure. It should yeah. have you looking for something, right? So, and it speaks to him really, because not too many fee make fee maker. What the fuck's a fee maker? I don't know. Not too many. I can f- guess. Yeah, uh, <laughs> not too many filmmakers. I think warrant that kind of plunge down the rabbit hole intellectually or artistically or 
yeah. in terms of what their work is saying with subtext and otherwise. So Yeah, and I also feel like, you know, Kubrick is smart enough. I mean, yeah. if you've read any interviews with him, there's very few, but if you've read any interviews with him or read any interviews with people who are around him, he was smart enough to and 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 had that dry sense of wit that uh, he could, you know, he could put stuff in his films too to fuck with you. Big time. He was obsessed with subliminal messaging and all that kind of stuff anyway, so Yeah. He could, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff could be in there on purpose. Some of it could be accident. But I would say knowing Kubrick, uh, or not knowing him because I didn't know him. I wish I would have. Knowing what you know of him, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I've read extensively on him. I would say that a lot of the stuff, not a lot of the stuff that, not a lot of the theories so much these guys are talking about are accurate. But I would say the fact that he put this stuff in there so people would think those kind of would would possibly come up with theories. Yeah. That could be quite accurate. Yeah, absolutely. Like that, there's a documentary from a few years ago. I can't remember what it's called, like the boxes of Kubrick or Kubrick's oh, yeah, yeah. boxes. I mean, that was fascinating. It was fascinating. So yeah, that was great. I'm glad you uh, rewatched. I'm glad we're on the same page. Um, started my week with one that sometimes I get these. I'm of the mindset. I feel like you know, Will, you're watching too much kind of linear stuff. And you got to watch something that's going to melt your brain. Yeah. Got to get outside the <laughs> get outside this kind of you know, the lunchbox hard hat stuff that I tend to watch a lot or the, you know, the trappings we all fall into. We all fall into three or four different kinds of films that we really like, whether it's yeah. junkie actioners or documentaries or Eurocrime. Yeah, for me, yeah, for me, because of the new role I took on in my career, it's, you know, over the last two or three years, I've, you've noticed I've had to watch a lot more new films as opposed to kind of looking into older films because I yeah. just don't have the time I used to have. That's right, man. No, it's for sure. Um, but I watched one that I, I loved, and it'll be probably in the top five to ten of my first-time watches. It's a Polish film, The Hourglass Sanatorium. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I saw you. I, I'd never seen it. Oh, it's so it. good. It's so <laughs> nice. – it'll just melt your brain. It's really it's really fascinating stuff, and it does – it captures dream logic, um, you know, in a way that and, – and the feeling of dreams and, and the lack of logic with dreams um, – Quite well, you know, it starts off, but, um, you know, and it's one of those things that, you know, you try much like with Kubrick's work. I think maybe this had to be a little bit influenced by that. You wonder what people were trying to convey or what the intent was and this and that. And so with this part of it, I don't know that there was anything other than an exercise for this man to kind of get some maybe some very personal things onto film. Mm. Uh, It's it's tremendous. I I really loved it. Really loved it. And then I took up the words of uh, our man Davey that was on the show last week, and I watched David and Lisa. Oh, yeah. Man, another one. This one was incredible. Um, directed by Frank Perry. Man, the waters again. You know, my one. Frank Perry of uh, The Swimmer? Frank Perry? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he directed this. His wife wrote it. It's got um, Kier Delea, speaking of Kubrick. Uh, I'm assuming that's how you say his name. Am I incorrect? I, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I, I I've, struggled, names that we I've struggled with his name since I first read it. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> it's like the Jared Leto thing. I say Leto. A lot of people say Leto. I, I say Leto. I say Leto. Yeah, I don't know what his fucking name is. Look, I'll just say Cardelia. I think that sounds right. But <laughs> don't we all know that his name is Joker? That's right. <laughs> um, but it's got him and Janet Margolin in it. Oh, nice. Um, and Jamie are. Jamie, again, I'm going to say again, the very anglicized Jamie Sanchez of Wild Bunch fame. Um, and Kier Delay is young in this. It's 1962. He is kind of this, um, he's had this intense um, issue with being touched by people. So he goes to the school for troubled teenagers. 
He doesn't like it, or he does want it. He, he you know, he you know, he has an intense dislike of being oh, okay. touched at all. So I'm like, I'm I'm like the opposite of his character then. As am I. <laughs> yeah. Bowling grip all day. Yeah. So. I want to be touched by everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, precisely. He's got the opposite of uh, you know Sammy Willie uh, syndrome. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I I hope next time we get together, Zom doesn't give us a Christmas handshake based on that. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. But uh, and it's got Janet Margolin in it, who plays his love interest, and she's you know got her own problem. All the kids have their own problems, but she becomes his love interest. It's really good, man. I really loved it. It's the kind of thing. Uh, it's on YouTube in its entirety. Um, nice. It's got Brazilian subtitles hard coded in, but whatever. Beggars can't be choosers. Yeah. I mean, come on, yeah. I'd love to see someone like Eureka or Criterion put this out. It's a again. This would be like top fifteen of the year for me. First time watches. Really dug it. Nice, nice. Where is where is Kier Duella from? Uh, I want to say he's American. I, I think he's yeah. American, and maybe his parents. But were... his heritage has to be. What do you yeah. think, Dutch? Ooh, man, with that name, uh, I don't know. He's from Cleveland, know. Ohio. So. <laughs> he's from Ohio. Yeah. Uh, well, he's from maybe, Jacobtown. Maybe he migrated uh, east or west from Pennsylvania Dutch. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't know, man. A lot of names I can I can tend to pin down where they're from, but. Man, I don't know about that one. He's got a unique name, no doubt about it. Yeah, Kier Atwood. As a matter of fact, his name is so unique, every time I hear it, or somebody try to say it, I immediately think of 2001. I mean, oh, it's so like, do I. It's immediate. I mean, he is so tied to that movie. So do I. Um, yeah, see, I even went to his wiki page, because a lot of times at the bottom they'll say, like, you know, Italian-American actors, like all this, the subcategories, but yeah. nothing. Nothing. Probably red-blooded American male with a name like yeah, Kier Duella. Fuck, man. I don't know. But anyway, it's a really good film. And I have to be honest, because I haven't seen him in a whole lot of films, and I've ever seen Bunny Lake is Missing, and, you know, I've seen him in a couple things, but I always associate him with 2001. I think, man, it's kind of a shame he didn't do much more, but he's really good in the film, man. Really good. So, I recommend. I, I, you should check it out if you get a chance. And it's weird because there's a kid in my son Braden's class who's four years old. He looks like the, like the baby child of Kier Duella. And I even paused it, and I said to Teresa, who does that look like? And she said the kid's name right away. <laughs> So nice, cool. nice. But, uh, yeah, this is cool maybe film. it's the re- rebirth of Kier Duella from uh, 2001. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that kid has, yeah. has finally reached Earth. Well, I'll know that if there's if like someone's making this huge black rectangle out of Lego in the classroom, I got to bounce, <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah. Um, like a like a monolith yeah. gets erected and stuff, and yeah, all the so. kids start hitting each other with bones. And bones, shit. man. Add to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, better get Braden working that overhand uh, smash now. That's when I knew. It's funny you say that because that's when I my mom and dad kind of knew I was going to be a movie buff because when I was a kid we had Legos, obviously, and I'd look for the black pieces and I'd always make these tall black towers and I'd say it's the monkey movie. Oh, nice. And they didn't know what I was talking about, but my mom and dad were obsessed with 2001. Like that was one of their favorite films, and they would watch it all the time. And uh, so I was obsessed with they would never. Really, I mean, I'd always kind of dial out after the monkey bits because I never really kind of understood. Yeah, you know, I wanted Star Wars. Yeah. yeah, I wanted Star Wars after that. And it wasn't quite Star Wars. <laughs> no. So, uh, you know, I didn't quite get the majesty of the ba- the kind of the ballet of the spaceships and all that kind of stuff. And, oh, man. But I got the monkey bits. Got those bits easy. It's, you know, that's probably, if I had to say, like, ten kind of bucket list films I'd like to see with you. I'd like to see a 70-millimeter print with you of 2001. Oh, yeah. I'd like to do oh, that. That would be great. Yeah. It's so good. I got to see it with Scott uh, and Vish a few years ago, and it's it really does bring a new appreciation of the film, and it's just something yeah. else. 
Um, so David and Lisa, and then I really I went from the penthouse to the fucking shit house with uh, <laughs> with uh, and I was pressing my luck hard with uh, Jean Roland's like mid eighties film Sidewalks of Bangkok. Yeah, I saw that you watched this. How was this? It's on instant, and I, it's weird because he did Lost in New York, which feels really dreamy. It's got those blank slate masks. You and I are both kind of, you know, oh yeah, put off by but drawn to, and very dreamy and cool. But this one, it's his. It's him trying to do, um, trying to do a uh, fuck. What's his name? Hard ticket to Hawaii. No, Andy Sidaris. <laughs> it's him trying to do a Sidaris film. Oh, but instead of the guns and like goofy one-liners from jocks, you get a lot of like um, out of rhythm, naked dancing from Thai women. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's not good at all. It's so boring. Yeah. Oh man, it's dog shit. But I can't remember the last, I can't remember when I fell off the rolling train. Obviously we've revisited it on the show and we've revisited some, I think we've what we've done one. Did we do one or two? We've, we've done, done a couple. One. Yeah, I think we've done. Yeah. Well, we did fascination, we did and we did. Uh, I want to see we did one more. Seems like we did two. Yeah. Let's see, we did. Um. Anyway. Uh. But at some point, it was. I know it had to have been in the '80s, somewhere around the late '80s or something. I saw something that he did, and I was like, okay, I'm done. And I couldn't go back. So I was curious what this one was like. Cause I remember reading about it, but I don't. I, I never ventured forth so i appreciate the fact that you did that we didn't have to pick this for a show or something <laughs> oh man it was awful and on paper it sounds like it's going to be fun and junky and just well wasn't... yeah it's the same thing you say about him being one of those masters of a screenshot like yeah, jess franco totally is the same way i feel about reading synopsis of roland and franco films like i read a synopsis of a jess franco film and i think oh it's going to be amazing yep and i watch it and i'm like oh my god this is awful now, mind you, I think it, it really that's kind of state of mind stuff. Like I watched Iron Rose one night when I came home. I think it's called the Iron Rose, John Roland. And they have a lot of his stuff on instant. So if you're interested, dip your toe. And there's Fascination and a bunch of other ones. Um, but I watched um, Iron Rose one night when I think it's called. I'm gonna look it up right now. Um, yeah, the Iron Rose. Um, when I was making like cookies one night, and I thought, man, this film's fucking amazing. And it is still cool. Like it's one I want to own. It's a good looking film. It's got a lot of bizarre imagery and. A good-looking lead, um, but yeah, man, this one was just it, it shit the bed. Um, then I decided to, to jump into Finland. Uh, good friend Antti had uh, sent me a couple Finnish films that um, uh, of Aki. Here's another minefield, Aki Korismaki. I've yeah, his name. I think he sent me the same. He sent me the same ones. I think he did. Yeah, I think so. Maybe. So, so Aki Olavi Korismaki, the sort of much loved and celebrated Finnish uh, filmmaker, um, sent me three of his early films. And the first one I did was uh, Shadows in Paradise. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Shadows in Paradise was the first one I had done of his. Um, I'm pretty sure it was. And uh, anyway, I have to say, uh, I loved it. Nice. It was a first. I think it was great. You can kind of get his, um, but it's kind of a love story in a way, but kind of working class. And it's about this garbage man, Mati Palompa, who is very cool. He's he's like a regular in Karsmaki's films. He's in the two of the three I saw. Finnish um, people. Finnish people have such great names. They do. They do. One of his, well, two of his co-stars, Sakari Kusmanen and Malto, no, Mato Valtonen. So they're great. <laughs> great names, man. They're great. <laughs> 
Um, they sound both like like really cool names and possible like prescription drugs at the same yeah, time. They do. Valtonin definitely does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mati Palompa is fun to say. He's got yeah, double. He's got the. Say, he's yeah. got the 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 much vaunted double umlaut over both. Oh, a, yeah, over yeah, both yeah. A's. So it's Super very death cool. metal right there. Man. Yeah, man. But this film's really cool. You can tell that um, Chris Mackey uh, really loves the kind of 40s, the noir films, because it feels at times a little bit noir-y, even though it, there's no elements of crime or anything, just in terms yeah. of shadows and loners. and Black and white? No, no, it's color. It's 86, so it's cool to see Finland in the 80s. and It's a, yeah. it's a tight little film, too. It's like 75 minutes long. Nice. And, and there's a great Eclipse series out, which I'm going to probably go out and buy. Like It's really good, man. I really dug it. Really dug it. Um, next up was Ariel, which is more in line with kind of crime films and noir and, um, things gone wrong. Um, and I'll just read you this, this, I know this, uh, this synopsis will appeal to you. So an out of work, they say Laplander, which I guess is like a regional Finnish man. An out of work Laplander seeks his dark destiny in a white Cadillac convertible. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's, uh, it feels a little bit Cohen, a little bit kind of, again, noir-y and, it's absurd, kind of working class, and Mati Palampa co-stars. It's it's cool, man. It's, it was really good. Really good. Uh, and then the last one I did of the three was The Man Without a Past, which got a lot of buzz. It was here at TIFF, and I think it was early 2000s. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know about this one. I haven't seen it, but I know about this one. It's weird. You know, this one was good, but I really don't... Netflix think, Instant, I believe. It's a good one. It's worth checking out, man. It's... Uh, it's uh, it's cool. Again, he deals with loners um, in you know unfamiliar surroundings, and you know dealing with strangers and kind of relying on the the kindness of strangers in some ways. And his films aren't flashy, but they're they're very very well done. Um, mm. I, I think you dig his work, man. It's really cool. Uh, this one kind of almost feels Hitchcocky in a way, you know, uh, more kind of kind of dark comedy. Uh, I think a celebration of Finnish people in some ways it feels like community. Uh, you know, this guy, he gets hit over the head and he wakes up. He can't remember who he is. And, you know, it's, it's not so much a mystery about him solving who he is, but just about him building a new life for himself um, oh, okay. on the fringes of society. And he falls in love with the woman in the Salvation Army. And, you know, it's, uh, it's cool. It's a cool film. I really like these. A nice kind of breath of fresh air. So very cool. Um, after that, I decided to rewatch a film that I hadn't seen since I was probably six or seven, and it was on instant. And Braden picked it. And Braden's got a good taste, man. He's got a good taste. Nice. William can be boomer bust sometimes. <laughs> Braden's a little more steady. He likes to roll the dice. He likes to roll them dice a little bit. Well, I see. He takes after his dad because you know, much like I rolled the dice on sidewalks in Bangkok, you know, he rolls the dice on some some. Uh, <laughs> Let's hope he doesn't do like uh, you know, like I always hope my son doesn't do like his dad. And- Roll the dice on those expired food products. Oh, man. Yeah. That's <laughs> I mean, not good. you've been known to do a few times. <laughs> that's not good. I rolled the dice on some stale breadcrumbs, and while I didn't get sick, it just was a bad, like, just just bland <laughs> as fuck. Like, why didn't I just shred some cardboard and put it on my pork loin? <laughs> yeah. Just a bad exactly, move, man. man. I wanted panko when I got paper. It's terrible. <laughs> terrible. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, but we did, uh, we did Big Top Pee Wee. Oh, yeah, nice. I like Big Top Pee-wee. Yeah. Man, Big Top Pee-wee, while it's not as great as Pee-wee's Big Adventure, it's yeah, that, really that, good. Yeah, that's the key word. It, Big, Pee-wee's Big Adventure is a great movie. It is a great movie. And Big Top Pee-wee is a good movie. It can never it, 
I mean, to be better than Pee Wee's Big Adventure would be very, very difficult. I can tell you when you, you know, being film lovers, I think all everyone can relate to this. When you watch a film and it energizes you, that's a testament mm-hmm. to the kind of film you're watching. And, and watching Pee's Big Adventure with William one night, it was like 1030 at night. It was a Friday night. He was up late. Everyone else had fallen asleep. Just he and I watched it. And I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And it just energized me. Yeah. I couldn't stop thinking about Pee Wee for like a week. Um, whereas this one is very good. Like I would say for me, like Pee Wee's Big Adventure is like, I mean, it's good. Man. It's like 8.75. Nine, yeah. like it's really good. Whereas for me, Big Top Pee was like seven and a half, seven point two five, seven and a half. Yeah, yeah. But it's not nearly as bad as people made it out to be. No, not at all. But the thing that's weird is that they kind of put him in this love triangle where he's got to like make out with chicks, which seems very weird. Like <laughs> yeah. they should have left him kind of boyish, I think. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awkward. Yeah, it's very awkward. But this cast is amazing. Um, of course, you got Pee Wee, but it's a very GGTMC cast. You get Chris Christopherson as Mace Montana. Yeah. Susan Tyrell is Midge Montana. Yeah, the itty-bitty person, yeah. The itty-bitty person. Um, <laughs> you get Franco Colombo showing up as a strong man. Yeah. <laughs> you get um, um, Mishu Meseros from uh, Freaks. Mm-hmm. You get, uh, <laughs> you get uh, Benicio Del Toro as Duke the Dog-Faced Boy. Yeah. Matthias Hughes as Oscar the Lion Tamer. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Peter Hall as Big John. And what might be... I had a great week of saying names because I had Mati Palampa from Finland. And then I had the brothers and sister uh, trapeze family in this, the Piccola Pupola family, <laughs> the Italian <laughs> trapeze artists. Piccolo Pupola. Piccolo Pupola family. Paolo Piccolo Pupola. Um, <laughs> there was four Piccolo Pupolas, man. What a fun name to say. It is. So, yeah. And uh, so this was good fun. The kids dug it. Um, like I guess it was weird to see Pee Wee sitting with his legs open and a chick laying between his legs. But it's still very much a kid's film, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I don't know what they were going for with that. I don't know if they were just trying to, like, make Pee Wee grow up or not. I don't know what they were going for with that angle. But, I mean, the relationship stuff was kind of there in, in Big Adventure with the Dottie thing. But it was more sweet and innocent versus, like, yeah. making out and, like, cheating on one girlfriend. and Yeah, yeah. Which is what happens here. Valeria Galino plays Gino. Gino. Gina Piccolo Pupola. <laughs> Gina Piccolo Pupola. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing, man. You say Piccolo, I say Pupola. So <laughs> yeah. Piccolo Pupola. Oh, man. Amazing. Amazing. Oh. And then Penelope Ann Miller. Does not play a Piccolo Pupola. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> no, she's a Penelope. But, but, right? but she's mm-hmm. a, yeah, she's a Penelope. And what's funny is she ends up, she's, she's going to marry one of the Piccolo Pupolas. So there you <laughs> Her go. Her name would have been Penelope Piccolo Pupola. <laughs> 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 what a name. Oh, man, that's amazing. That's amazing. So oh, well. there was that. And then... <laughs> It was a light week. I was watching lots of playoff basketball and the draft, and which I promised myself I wasn't going to get caught swept up into. And, and of course, I get swept up into that. And yeah, yeah, you know all the basketball. And um, it was man, I'll tell you what, it was a great week. Just not to digress too much here, run along. But what a great week for weekend for sports fans. The greatest, the most like the biggest boxing match we're going to see for some time. The Kentucky Derby, NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, Major League Baseball. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, know. it was Yankees. Uh, it was Yankees Red Sox weekend. Yeah, I mean it was just crazy at uh, the NFL draft. It was just one of the best weekends for sports I could imagine. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. between that and nice weather and everything else, I didn't watch anything else other than tonight. We watched Wizard of Speed and Time. 
Yeah, I saw that. I think I've seen that before. I'm not positive if I have. I'd never even heard of it, and it's always crazy to me when people in our community who we love and whose opinions and tastes we trust, like uh, Matt Matsuzaka, he repped for this one. A few other people did, and I was like, man, I've never even heard of this thing. Um, put it on. It was cool, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of Pee Wee and you know Weird Al Yankovic UHF and. Um, you know, it's kind of it's it's this guy. He does special effects and and he wants to make a film. It feels a bit like if Trauma had a kids division, like a family film division. You know, oh. kind of wacky, a little bit rough around the edges in terms of um, production value, but but its heart's in the right place. You can see a lot of the nuts and bolts of how special effects are done and kind of DIY. Like I could see how Gondry, Michael Michelle Gondry, if someone would be a fan of it. You know, it's a cool little film. Um, I didn't love it. But uh, it was cool, and you know it's uh, it's fun. I'm gonna try to revisit it with the kids because they were they were hyped up from uh, just nice weather and everything. So we walked, we got through with three quarters of it, and you know we got through all of it. But you know they'd be up and down a couple minutes at a time. So you know, but uh, yeah, it's on YouTube as well. So that was my week. Nice. Yeah, good week. Um, good week. We were gonna take a break. Which one do you want to get into first? Uh, well, you said chronological at the beginning, so I guess we should just go that way. Excellent. So next up is 1961's Taxi for Tobruk. We will be right back. This is Red Brown. You're listening to Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Bring me to Jakarta! Yo. Yo. Pipala Pupala. That's it. Piccolo Pupala back. <laughs> All right, so we are going to talk about Taxi for Tobruk. Did you want to lead on this? Did you want me to? Uh, no, I'll let you lead on this one. Okay, cool. Uh, again, directed by Denis de la Patelière, uh, written by Michel Oduard and René Avard and some more Frenchmen, starring, if they were French, we would call them R.D. Kruger, uh, but it's Hardy Kruger, uh, German heartthrob, Lino Ventura, GGTMC heartthrob, uh, Maurice Bureau. Charles Aznavour, uh, much-loved French actor, and Germain Cobos, and the cast of a few others. So, yeah. yeah. Off the top of my head, uh, I don't really, I can't recall off the top of my head, because I, I don't have my cheat sheet, which is the internet in front of me. But what do I know, Hardy Hardy Kruger? You know from, him from Barry Lyndon, I would imagine. Hattari, uh, Light of the yes. Phoenix. Those are the three big ones I know. I don't know. I know he's been did, a lot did, more than that. Did he work with Kubrick a couple times? Uh, he might have. He also did uh, The Wild Geese, which I've never seen. Yeah, we'll uh, do that someday. I've been trying to get us to do that for a long time. We did what the peeper saw. Um, okay, so he was in Barry Lyndon, though. Yep, which you know him from. Yeah, it was like top three or top four or five. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, he and Ventura. What, what? What am I? Why am I drawing a blank on Ventura? Army of Shadows? Oh yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, man. That's right. Yeah, he's uh, he did a lot of French kind of noiry stuff. Uh, hey, he's got a great face. Yeah. Oh man, he's one of my favorites. Tough guys you would have seen with uh, what's it called yeah. there, with uh, the Velaci papers, of course. What's it yeah. called? Um, fuck, tough guys. He was the priest. Uh, Yafakota was it, or was it Isaac Hayes? I can't remember. Yeah, Isaac Hayes and Fred Williamson. You know, tough oh. guys. Oh yeah, the Ducho Tesari film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the uh, the. Um I've always when I see Ventura, I always think uh, he's like the the noir version of Goober from Andy uh, the uh, Andy Griffin show. <laughs> Especially in this movie with his hat, because only he yeah. can make that hat look fucking look macho. Cool. No, it's true, man. 
He's uh, he's very cool. I can't. I know he did. He worked a lot with Melville, like a lot of the yeah. earlier stuff before Melville fell in love with um, with Delon. I've uh, seen him in a lot of stuff, but I don't know why I'm drawing blanks. But I've seen him in a lot of stuff. Yeah, Le Douzième Soufflé, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like a good Soufflé too. Uh, so oh, you're talking about a movie? Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. That's right. The Sicilian Clan, which is cool. Alain Delon, I think in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jean Gabin. Alain Delon. Man, that's got a cast: Jean Gabin, Alain Delon, and Lino Ventura. Nice. Man. Um, did, did Delon and uh, Belmondo ever work together? I asked that to someone, and I don't remember what the um, what the. They seem uh, to have been competitors, like uh, like they'd be up for the same roles, be like Seagal and and uh, Van, Dam. Van Dam or Nero and uh, somebody. I'm trying to think of somebody. Oh man, <laughs> this one, Greed in the Sun. It's got Belmondo, Van, Lino Ventura, and Bernard Blyer. That's a cool cast. Yeah, Nero and maybe Testy. I don't think they yeah. ever worked together. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. I saw, um, I saw Ventura in a really cool noir, kind of on borrowed time. What was it The Last Judgment? Maybe? No, no, no. Anyway, he's you know much loved as kind of a classic tough guy. And, um, yeah, he's got a great face, just like a Coen brother type face. Yeah, totally. What's this? The Mask of the Gorilla. Got a great title, and he plays the titular gorilla. Got to check that out sometime. Yeah, anyway, <clears throat> um, so yeah, it's got uh, him and you know uh, Asenauer and you know like you said uh, Kruger and so forth. Um, so a cast of kind of you know, some big names uh, in French and European film of the time. Um, I'll synopsize this then, and I will also lead on it. Um, where are we here? So I, I had never heard of this one. I should say I just I'd seen Ventura's name and I'd seen the other. I name. never had either. Uh, when you picked it, uh, I immediately when you told me what you'd picked, I immediately went to the internet because I'm like, what what is this movie? What is this? I don't know what this is. Is this some kind of like you know German comedy? What is this? I mean, it's you know, I don't know what it is. And once I read the synopsis, I'm like, oh okay, this is gonna be cool. We don't do a lot of these type of movies. So this will be fun. Yeah, it's more of a married with clickers, uh, paleo yeah. cinema. It's very much a Doctor Zom movie. For very me. I, well, I tagged Zom. I feel like it's a Terry Frost Zom, Scott yeah. Clickers. I mean, you know, Armin. You totally. get these Tyler. You know, you get these kind of people. I feel like it really fits into their wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. It feels, you know? totally feels like for me. After watching about ten minutes of it, I was like, this feels like something. Sam, almost said his real name, but John, whatever, he would have recommended yeah. we check out. So. Oh, totally. No, I, I, I hope he's yeah. listening. If he's listening, uh, he should definitely check it out. Yeah, we had tagged him, and I had tagged him in a post because I, I felt the exact same way. Interesting piece of trivia before we get into it here. Alino Ventura, they talk about him in the film being a, the boxing champion of Europe. In actuality, he was the European Greco-Roman champion in 1950 for wrestling. Oh, yeah, he looks like a Greco-Roman kind of guy. <laughs> he doesn't fuck around, man. I'll mop the floor with a few motherfuckers. He um, takes a Kruger down with one punch to the gut there, buddy. Yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> Knockout Ned. I think uh, one of the funniest lines in the movie is, is that uh, he's always trying to protect Kruger from all the other ones, but he's the one that keeps hitting him. <laughs> I know. It's true. It's true. Well, it's funny because they do really play against type, I feel like, or they play against expectation, which we'll get into here because you would think he would be an animal, but in some ways his character has the most sympathy for the mm-hmm. enemy, which, you know. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot being said with this film, but essentially what this film is, because there's no synopsis. Um, it's a kind of an underseen film. Uh, four French soldiers, World War II, French commandos, uh, kidnap a German captain uh, across the North African desert in his cars. It takes place in Libya. 
there's been a few films about the area of Torbrook. If you if you look online, you can find kind of few films about Torbrook. So Torbrook is Libya. Libya. Okay. Yep, Libya. So um, you know, very inhospitable. But this is land. German occupied desert territory, correct? Yeah, World War Two. France is you know can you know Rommel, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. So which again, it's always interesting uh, to see World War Two uh, outside of standard. Uh, theater that we normally see correct right i mean it's such an expansive thing so um we talked about the cast i'll tell you i watched the intro on the disc it's kind of like a little interview piece where it's got oh yeah yeah that's that one bonus feature it has on there and it's a cool little i like that they they did the same thing with johnny guitar they don't do a ton of bonus features they put more money into making sure the presentation of the disc is is fantastic but mm-hmm. um I really like that piece where you know they interview the director and the writer, and I think I think Ventura might even be in there. I can't remember now, but I quite like that. Yeah, it seems like it was critically acclaimed at the time. It's one of those ones, though. It's just so weird to me that it just kind of, until you know this recent reissue. I mean, nobody had ever kind of thrown it my way. I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard another filmmaker talk about it. No, I know nothing, nothing. So it's one of those ones that you know so under the radar. For me personally, I'm oh, not yeah. saying that, you know, it might have been a seminal film for somebody that listens to this show. But for me, this thing, uh, well, like I said, when you picked it, I was like, what the, what is, what is this? Yeah. I'd be intrigued from the get-go. Yeah, I know, same. That's the thing, right? Yeah, I know some of our friends that are really into the, that era of filmmaking will be familiar with it. But mm-hmm. for you and I, I mean, you know, not to say, not to see our home, but, we, you know, we've, for us to have not even heard of the film, you know, kind of a testament. It's like, this thing's really getting kind of under the rug. So, again, not to toot Olive's horn. But I think it deserves tooting um, when it comes to some of the films they put out. Both films this week we're going to talk about, you know, we had to roll the dice. You know, we always say it's bad to roll a dice on a fart um, when you have an upset tummy, but it's good to roll the dice on a label you trust, like Olive. Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> I hope that goes on their next box art for their next uh, their box, next release. Box fart there, but <laughs> Yeah, their box fart. Yeah, the Dr. Zom. Uh, their ruck fart there. The ruck fart. Well, there you go with the German, right? Um <laughs> Um, <laughs> shit. She. Yeah, uh, she, literally. She, oh, she. Yeah, the old Campbell soup, man. Yeah. Um, so the film opens, and I think this is a 92 minute film. I love that. Uh, I'm just going to say Denis. I'm going to call him his first name because De La Pataillere is just, it's a mouthful. Even yeah, we'll so. start getting back into Pupolo Piccolo. Pupolo Piccolo, Pupolo Pupolo, whatever it is. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, but he's very smart because he, he has an economy about the film, uh, which serves us well. When the film opens, it's Christmas 1941. Mm-hmm. Um, we should say this, and this is like 15, 16 years after World War II ended. So actually, I think ironically, and of course, history buffs, you know, please don't flay me for this one. But I think isn't today the anniversary of World War II ending, like the, the 70th anniversary? Oh man, I wish I could say I wish I could be a proud person and say that I knew the answer. I to thought that. it might have been in 1945. I, I want to say it is, but anyway, we're close enough that at this time this film was made. I mean, it's 15 years after World War II ends, so it's still yeah, pretty it's fresh. Crazy. Yeah, yeah it's very still crazy. really fresh. Yeah, and I think that I love the way it opens because it opens at Christmas. It not only is a great opening, but it's it's a great little kind of title um, or like a credit sequence because it gives us each of our characters outside of war, sort of yeah, with their. Reminded me of a uh, sorcerer. It's so funny you say sorcerer because I was going to say this, ha- and that's another. That this ties into my theory of why I think this film is fell through the cracks because this is a French film. 
Very mm-hmm. similar to Wages of Fear. Yes. Is Wages of Fear before this? Yeah, Wages of Fear is 1953. Okay, there we go. So I feel like maybe some – that's part of the reason this falls through. Because, listen, I'll be forthright and say I quite like this film. But Wages of Fear is on another level to most films. Yeah, yeah. But you definitely feel like this – like Wages of Fear had been seen. Yeah, absolutely. Several times. Because there's a lot of similarities between this, Wages of Fear, and Sorcerer. Sorcerer. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You I mean, obviously, Sorcerer and Wages of Fear have similarities because it's basically a remake. It's a, it's a remake, yeah. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, is this is kind of like the middle ground between those two things. Sure. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely it is. You know, Which is you, why I think a lot of our friends that we know real close would really probably enjoy this. Cause they I would think dig it. Because I would get a lot of that. So, yeah, that same that same kind of uh, satisfaction you get from Sorcerer and Wages of Fear. And you might fall on one side of the fence or the other there. Yeah. So I'd be curious where they would think this. I think this film's kind of like right down the middle. Uh, yeah. Like if Wages of Fear is like a... A nice uh, slider, and if uh, Sorcerer is like a gigantic curveball, then this is like that fastball, like right down the middle. <laughs> yep. Yeah, nothing fancy necessarily, but it does it well. It gets there A to B, and, yep. you know, absolutely. Good job done. And, yeah, and I feel like for its time, looking at the context of when the film's made, it does some things that are interesting. Um, it speaks to the kind of that man versus nature, man versus man, man versus the elements thing that is always appealing in film. Um, it's also, you know, comparable to thing, something like Hell in the Pacific or Enemy Mine. Oh, yeah. Right? Where yeah. sides are forced to work together to coexist and in doing so, see the humanity in one another. And I think that's one of the most powerful anti-war sentiments that you see in film is mm-hmm. – Yeah, because, you know, cultural cultural paradigms don't always equal the person, right? That's right. Oh. Assumptions about uh, national, you know, national assumptions or mm-hmm. it's bias. easy for the Nazis to be the bad guys when you're on a ridge shooting at them. Well, that's right. And you know, Hardy Kruger it should be said wasn't the Hitler Youth against his against his own uh, will or wishes, um, mm-hmm. and he you know he got out of that and uh, you know, went to quite a career in film. But and you should I should say if you get a chance look up his son Hardy Kruger Jr. He looks like. Um, He's like the Scott Eastwood, you know, to Clint. He's like the more han- he's like a slightly more handsome version of Hardy, but <laughs> it's uncanny how much he looks like him. Like yeah, Hardy's- Scott, that that Scott Eastwood thing, that thing's really starting to start to get creepy a little bit. Well, Scott Eastwood start- apparently, I think he's in. Uh, he plays Wonder Woman's love interest in one of the new films coming out. Uh, uh, I mean, I think he'll have a career. I don't know how good an actor he'll be, but I think he could have a career. I mean, he he, he needs to get a little bit more. Uh, Maybe a little bit more rugged, but I'm afraid if he gets a little bit more rugged, he'll start to look like his dad too much. Well, yeah, but Hardy Kruger Jr. has a pretty good accomplished career because Hardy Kruger went to Italy, married an actress, and had a, had a son. And Hardy Kruger Jr. is the uh, the outcome, and he's an accomplished uh, actor. But look him up when you get a chance. It's uncanny how much he looks like his dad. Nice. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I think that you know that this this the intro gives us an idea of it humanizes each of the characters. Now, by doing that, when they're thrust into this situation where their Jeep breaks down in very uh, unforgiving climate, it makes it that much more dramatic. Much like when we see horror films that have the patience and the skill to make us care about the characters because then the threat of death becomes that much more powerful and much more right. tense. Right. Instead of just five teenagers stopping at a gas station randomly. Yeah. After well, they just smoked a couple of spliffs and drank a couple of hooch juices. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's right, man. Stopping by to wipe that taint. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden they start to get to murder and get to killed. And, uh, 
you know, you don't really care. You're just looking for the, the stylishness of the kill, right? So that's what you're watching that movie for at that point. But this is, I agree with you. It's a different angle. It reminded me, like I said, it reminded me of uh, Sorcerer at first. Yeah. And uh, that's what it reminded me of first because, I mean, I, they try to humanize those characters too at the beginning. They do. Absolutely, right? Well, each character is given its moment, its spot in the spotlight because it allows you to care. And it's interesting where you draw sides. You see one of them with his family. You know, you kind of feel for him. If maybe if you're more of a loner and you see the you know, Ventura's character in England, uh, with, not with his family, there's more sympathy for him. So it's kind of interesting the way they set that well, up. Well, yeah, and then you got the, the doctor, the Jewish doctor, who is forced you know, out of obviously for, has more anger towards the Hardy Kruger, Kruger character than anybody else uh-huh. for obvious reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And he even says some stuff to him that's, you know, you know, he can, you know, something like he can feel sorry for you and stuff. I don't. Yep. Things like that. Like, he's not willing to forgive, which, you know, again, this is war. So some people are willing. Some people are more willing than others. It's just as simple as that. And this goes above and beyond war when, you know, uh, his people were being fucking exterminated by Hardy Kruger's people. Yeah. I mean, it becomes more than war. This becomes very personal and justifiably so. Mm -hmm. Um, We're talking about Olive's... uh, Olive's work on this, I feel like they did a really good job. I don't know what the source material was, but um, it had of, to be pretty. It had to be pretty solid. I it, mean, yeah, I was. I told you I had watched it. We talked last week, and I told you I had watched most of it, and I was kind of blown away. At uh, I mean, it's not the best looking blue I've ever had, but I mean, it's way better looking than I expected to be. This could have run the risk of because if you can see the grain in the sand, you can see the hair in these guys' legs. There's mm-hmm. a lot of detail, but there's still some graininess and texture to it, whereas it could have been very washed out from the sun. And yeah, easily. It's kind of blended into itself, but Olive did a really good job with it. Yeah, really yeah the job. sand uh, looks amazing. I mean, it does. It's like that first time when I really realized Blu-ray was a thing was when I watched Mad Max and I saw those, you know, the cracks in the asphalt and things I'd never really paid attention to before. That's the way I feel about this, although I'd never seen this before. But, man, the sand was – it was uh, riveting. <laughs> yeah. No, it totally was, man. It totally was. To the uh, point to where when they, they warned him at one point to not go where the soft sand is, I'm like, yeah, go where the soft sand is. I want to see that sand move some more. <laughs> oh, big time. <laughs> <laughs> Big time. And, uh, yeah, and we get some great scenes with that. Um, I think uh, another thing they do that, that's really great that I like is they kind of set up the torture of and the pain of, of being dead. Um, <laughs> the pain of, uh, of, uh, of, of dying from thirst. You know, when they talk yeah. about, you know, your tongue swells. You start you to hear and see things, fucking spasms, and the flies come. Yeah. Right? Um, yep. So I really like that setup. It really gives us, again, more emotional investment. Oh, shit. You know, it also gives us a, a lot of opportunity to see Lilo Ventura without a shirt on. Man, he takes that thing off. He's very GGTMC. He's classic. He's he's Generation 1. Yeah, that, this, is not, this is not six packs and, uh, you know, flex and pecs. This is, you know, six beers a day. Oh, a yeah. stogie and a steak sandwich, you know what I mean? Big time, man. <laughs> Big time, man. Yeah. This is a man's man type body. Classic. On these guys. Yeah, exactly, man. Like a Georgie Animal Steel. Yeah. You know. Yeah, but if, uh, thankfully Ventura doesn't have that amount. He's not if he'd had that amount of hair on his back and the sweat, I would have probably been like like throwing up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> because I've, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but whenever I used to watch Georgie Animal Steel wrestle, I used to always kind of get grossed out a little bit. 
because you know somebody would get in a bear hug or something with him and stuff and you could just see the hair overflowing on their arms and oh yeah or he'd get them and you know like under his arm or something you just see the hair on their face i'm like oh <laughs> i know i have a real aversion to back hair sorry for any of our hairier gents out there yeah i'm uh luckily you know, we knew it was a match made in heaven when I didn't have any back hair. It was all in the front. Yeah. My dad my dad had these uh he didn't he was a hairy man, but he didn't have a whole lot of back hair, but he had patches. He had the unfortunate patched black uh back hair. So he'd have like a patch like you know, like Florida down here, like fucking Wyoming up there and and I always felt bad for him, man, because it, it looked even worse in a way. Yeah, it's true. I always it's, was fearful that I was gonna grow up and you I mean it was patch. it was such a it was such a like phobia of mine that I would get another mirror. You know how you check the back of your head, oh, and, like yeah. your hair and stuff. I would get a mirror and check my back and my ass to make sure it didn't get nearly as hairy. My back, yeah, big time, man. <laughs> yeah, I was sure. like so phobic about it. Plus, yeah. I had a friend who was a dark-haired dude, and from the waist down, the dude was a werewolf. Yeah, we've seen that. It's uh... yeah, it's pretty pretty disturbing. Yeah, I, I mean, he was so hairy that like taking a shit was painful. So. And yeah, that's that can't be good. <laughs> that, that's that's a bad deal. That is a really bad deal. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I don't have that deal, man. I mean, I'm, I'm hairy, but not. Ooh, yeah. Uh, I mean, he was so hairy, man. It's like you know, it looked like a chick with yoga pants on when we were, you know, a shower after a gym class. You know. That's intense. <laughs> yeah. I'm not to uh, not to to uh, draw attention there or to make our our more hairy uh, listeners. Feel, uh, yeah. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no offense to the hairy ones. Oh, no, no. I'm, pre- I'm pretty hairy myself, so you know. Yeah, just uh, I'm a little fuzzy, wuzzy. In all the right places. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, what else do we got here? Yeah, the tongues and all that stuff. Uh, there's a lot of great. I feel like this is a really well written script. Really well written. It's smart without being showy. Yeah, it could be like a. I don't. I don't know if it is because I, I didn't look up any trivia or any info about the movie at all. But I feel like it could almost be like a stage play, really. You could. You could if you were creative enough. You could set it up uh, that way. Um, yeah, like, you could put a jeep on stage. You could have some moving background and stuff. I mean, it'd be kind of fancy, but you, you could do it because yep. the dialogue is. The conversations are that good. Yeah. No, they really are. They're great. Like um, even just some of the throwaway lines, like they're talking about dying of thirst. One of the, I think Ventura, or maybe it's. Um, one of the other characters, he says, uh, it was Aznavour, when he says, you know, I'm going to die for, uh, die of thirst like a geranium, <laughs> you know, yeah. or tomorrow the wheat will look better. It'll be fertilized with uh, Gensac. That's the Maurice Barrow's last name. It'll be, you know, fertilized with Gensac fertilizer. And, and it just, I feel like it's a, an effortlessly poetic without being overly cutesy or flowery kind of script. It feel, still feels very macho. But it feels, yeah. you know, intellectual without little banging you over the head with it. Yeah, and it's not real showy filmmaker wise either. That's right. Like it, it's it looks well fine, done. but it's not. Uh, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not over stylized or anything like that. Precisely. You know, another thing I like, kind of nuts and bolts thing that I thought, well, you know, we don't really see that too much in film, and it makes total sense. There's a moment when Ventura and the French are they see Kruger and his crew. Uh, you know, having something to eat, they've stopped uh, in the, the the desert, and they're going to attack them and kill them. And you know, they only have limited supplies. And Ventura says, "Okay, I have this one here. You have this guy here. You have this guy here, and you you take that guy over there because he's." You're talking about the nuts and bolts. I thought it's such an obvious thing, but we rarely see that in films. 
whether it's yeah. any film with guns, but it would make sense when you're running low on ammunition. Mm-hmm. Instead of three guys shooting one guy, you know, let's each have a guy to, to shoot. Yeah. It's, just, it's yeah. such an obvious thing, but it, you rarely see it in films. I, I think it's something you have to address in this type of war movie, but the, you know, of course, most movies, you know, every gun has unlimited ammunition, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> most movies, even if you have a six uh, shooter revolver, it seems how the, the, somehow a person can fire off 12 or 10 shots. So go figure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. It's very true. Um, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite lines in this is when they're rationing the water and they're kind of passing around the canteen. And uh, one of them says the container's opaqueness or opaqueness allows you to cheat. You know, meaning someone could swig more water than the rest because remember, God is watching. Yeah. <laughs> like, because it's true. You, you, you get one motherfucker who's trying to swig a little bit more water and everyone else is trying <laughs> to kind of, you know. Yeah, trying to ration it. Trying to ration it. So Ventura in true GDTMC fashion is the first dude with his shirt off every time. Yeah. Every time, which is great. Yeah, uh, no, you know, that, that seems apropos because, I mean, he's the bigger man, so he's probably getting hot, hot a lot quicker. Yeah. <laughs> Nasty you know, I mean, and hot, know, man. As, yeah, as, as a heavy man up top myself, I mean, I'm not, you know, super heavy, but I'm heavy enough. You know, when I get hot, I get hot quick. Yeah, so. no, it's true, man. It's true. Um I think the stuff that's supposed to be nerve-wracking in this is nerve-wracking. You know, we're given a few different um, situations that they're thrust into. <laughs> One of my favorite is, they're attacking from above, must be Canadians. <laughs> I was going to screen cap that and tag you in it. Yeah, that, that's great, man. I love, I love that. that. <laughs> it must be the Canadians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love uh, I love the, you know, the stuff with... Um, them having to fit in with the Germans. That stuff's really tense. You know, oh, yeah. really tense. It's great. That's a great sequence. I really oh, like that yeah. sequence. Yeah, it's a really good sequence. There's two or three really great sequences in this movie, so I had a hard time picking a make or break. But I went with one that comes later, but that that was arguably my second favorite sequence in yeah, the film. It was really, really good. I, I like that moment where the, the one guy thinks he knows him. Yes. And yeah. in, in, in true to... In true uh, GGTMC uh, Christopher Mitchum type of uh, costume, uh, <laughs> you know, a hiding form, he just throws a hat on. All of a sudden, he doesn't recognize him anymore. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Speaking of hats, Lino Ventura, his name is Dudu in this. D U D U. And I and I won't lie. Every time they said it, I kind of snickered a little bit sometimes. Yeah, Dudu, and he wears a huge French beret with a pom pom on it. Yet he looks cool as anything in it. Yeah. Imagine if his last name was Piccolo Pupolo. That'd be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So many names that don't go with that name. I mean, it's unfortunate if you get a bad name. First name. Yeah, you're you're up up the creek, as they say. Yeah. It was weird. Like (laughs) shit up the creek. Yeah, that's right. Like shit creek, but doo doo creek. Yeah, Pupolo Creek, man. Hang on, you go ahead and keep talking. Um. It's baffling to me and a bit unfortunate. Ventura was Italian, of course, but, you know, born in France. Or was born in Italy, but I think he was maybe raised in France. It's too bad he didn't work with any of the Italian great directors of the uh, the 50s. You know, working with a Rossellini or someone or, you know, some of the guys in the 60s and even the 70s. Um, it's really too bad because I feel like um, it would have been nice to see him on screen working with some of the Italian directors at the time. Hmm. Um I love uh, I love the talk about Paris being in ruin, and you know I feel like really really good stuff, and uh, I like uh, I like 
it's getting hot in the block. Uh, I like some of the, there's some commentary just about, and it's not heavy handed, but we see it in Paths of Glory as well, how the higher ups in the war are always, you know, making decisions that impact a lot of lives. And, you know, it's great. It's very much an anti-war film done, you know, before a lot of anti-war films, which is another thing I think that's very admirable about it. Um, we get a payoff with the flies, which, you know, I won't talk about too much. Um, well, I'd mentioned this film's not, it's not chatty, but it's, you know, it, it picks its spots and those spots are, you know, they're well done. Classic kind of macho stuff. Um, I love, uh, the line, you know, it's right towards the end of the film. Uh, and I don't want to say the context, but, uh, you know, one of the characters laments, he says, this situation is so stupid. And I think that kind of, that really uh, is the kind of thesis or the, the statement of the film that I think all the parties involved uh, were really you know, trying to convey. Um, and yeah, those are, um, those are all my notes uh, on the film itself. Um, a little paranoid here, make sure we're still recording. Yeah, we are. Um, yeah, I just, all in all, I thought, uh, you know, quite solid, uh, <laughs> I'm back. Sorry about I'll, that. I'll, that's okay. I'll let you, uh, I'll let you take, uh, take over. Yeah. Oh yeah. I got a few things. Um, and I was listening to you the whole time. So, you know, good, good. uh, just so, you know, people know that we don't uh, just play games with each other and say, Oh, he's talking. <laughs> I'm too much for, for you know, I, I got too much going on. That's right. Um, let's see here. Yeah, I like the simple setup as well. The story based on character interaction, kind of character setups. That works because you get a personality. I mean, the personalities aren't real diverse, but they're diverse enough where you can put the four together yes. along with the Hardy Kruger, Kruger character and you get five distinct personalities. And then you give the uh, the dr- dramatic touch of uh, four men taking one person a hostage. But one person taking four men a hostage, that's pretty tough because you got to sleep sometime. There's a great moment. Yes. With the Hardy uh, Kruger nodding off all the time and stuff, pretty pretty funny. It is good. There are some laughs in the film, like you know, lighthearted, yeah. earned, well yeah, earned. Some, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing too over the top. Some kind of silly moments. Like I said, there's that line where you know, like because Ventura is really the one that's kind of always taken up, not taken up for him, but really wants to go by the rules of war, which is a prisoner of war. We don't, you know, beat him. We don't, you know, kill him. We don't do this. We don't do that. You know, we're trying to go by the the actual rules of war. And uh, then, the, you know, the one character teases him, like, you're always trying to protect him, but you're the one that's hit him three times, you know? Yeah. And Ventura's yeah. kind of like, uh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> kind of got that great face. Because he's got a great face for comedy because his face is kind of so descriptive. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, he can do a lot of stuff with it. Um, I really like the – I like these kind of stories where you kind of get the enemy, quote, unquote. I mean, I mean, we know what the Nazi party did. We know about the atrocities of World War II. Um, we know about all these things, but I like when we take a character who, you know, he's in that and obviously he's part of that, but you know, it, it always gets complicated when we see their human side as well. Yes, it does. Again, like I said, it's easy to pick off enemies from a distance. I think, I think it's easy. uh, I think I read somewhere, somebody said it's easy to kill a man from a distance, but when you got to kill him with your bare hands, it's really tough. Yes. Um, because you know we're, we are all human beings when it comes down to it, so you really got to have a a real motivation to be that way, or you just got to be psychotic, or who knows, you know, so you have other issues. But still, 
I kind of like that uh, they kind of take that angle and stuff. And I, I think I feel like I've seen this done in a few films, um, where obviously you know people think that the the person they've got as a prisoner or whatever is the worst person on the face of the earth that they've come to. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I know I've seen a few films like this. Well, Enemy Mine, like you're saying, Hell in the Pacific. Yeah. Even this year with Tangerines is a, is a great example of this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't seen it, but I remember you talking about that. Very good film. And I really like this uh, Blu-ray as well. I mean, I think this thing looks great. And the good suspenseful moments in the movie. Like I said, the direction's not too fancy. It's very competent and very simple. It feels like the film's, uh, you know, very low budget in a way because I think it seems like the two massive explosion moments seem like they happen in the same area, <laughs> yeah. but they just kind of like move some stuff around Yeah. Uh, for like the airstrike and then the explosions at the beginning and stuff. Uh, there's a great sequence in a landmine field, which I quite liked. Oh yeah. And had an unexpected twist. There's, there's two unexpected twists in this film. I don't know why I thought they were unexpected, but I think it's because of the way that Denise sets up the, uh, sets up the story. I didn't see these, these kind of heavy moments coming. So I was no, kind of surprised by that. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that. And I like the way it ended as well. I like the way it I love the ending. Dark chocolate. It's bittersweet, you know? So Yeah, man. Nice. So it's very it's very, uh, very interesting. Uh, I think the film's really good, man. I was surprised how much I got caught up in it for a movie. It's always nice when you never heard of or, you know, never seen any poster work or anything. I mean, you know, we're movie buffs, so... You know, we see a lot of stuff. I mean, we see a lot of movies. We see a lot of film-related posters and pictures, and we go through people's filmographies. We do we do all this stuff on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. Uh, this thing never never even crossed my vision ever once. Uh, um, even when Olive started putting films out, this and I would look at their catalog. I didn't see this. I know. Uh, not well. I mean, it might have been a while back, and they hadn't had it yet. But even as much as recently, but when we were just talking with Olive you know, kind of negotiating doing this, uh, I was looking through their filmography or the, through their catalog and I was like, I didn't even see it then. I didn't even pay attention. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of one of those films that, you know, blink and you'll miss it literally. Oh, big time, man. And the, the title, while it's, it's very appropriate. It's also kind of misleading in a way as well, you know, cause you know, you see that title, like I heard you say that I thought, okay, this is some kind of European, like, maybe possible sex comedy slash crime film or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause you think about it, it yeah. kind of sounds like something like that. Like it could be a, you know, one of those type of movies. So, so it's totally yeah. the opposite of that, but I, I, I did quite enjoy the interaction of the characters. It's probably my favorite thing about it. I mean, it's going to be tough to pick an MVT. I think I know where I'm going with it though, but I mean, all the actors are really good. The, the five uh, leads are all really good in the film. They are. They all really kind of deserve the MVT in a way because it's really so centered on them. And I got to say, my idea of torture, driving through the hot desert at that speed, no the speed fun. these guys are driving at, because they're not driving fast. You can't really drive super fast, at least I don't think you can on sand. Yeah. I guess on some parts of sand you can, but, um, you know, there's moments when they're going like, what, maybe five miles an hour? Yeah, probably. Rocking back and forth. That would be like a nightmare <laughs> for me. Oh, fuck. I would go no crazy breeze. in the heat. Yeah. And the heat and everything, oh. and being so jealous of, of Ventura's hat, I'd Damn go nuts. Man. Like, give it's me true. that fucking hat with the pom-pom. <laughs> yeah, like it is an amazing Like hat. a beret slash toque. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. What's cool is, um, I should say, Odiard wrote A Death of a Corrupt Man, that amazing fucking Alain Delon film I watched about a month ago. Nice, nice. Yeah, and I'm not familiar with anything else this director's done either, I don't think. 
Yeah, I'd have to take a look again and see. But um, There might have been one or two in there I thought sounded familiar, but I'm not really familiar with this guy's work. So I'd be curious to check out some more stuff from him, though, after seeing this. Because, you know, the piece, it feels like at the time when it came out, it was pretty critically acclaimed. But like you said, maybe it got lost in the shuffle with Wages of Fear and and maybe, of course, in the mid-60s, late 60s, maybe people didn't want to... I mean, there's always been war films, but at some point in time, they kind of ebb and flow, right? You know, you kind of get away from it for a while. People don't really want to make war films sometimes. That's right. They, really they, they kind of them. fall out of... Um, like any genre. Like yeah, any they, genre, out of like, style in some ways. And, you know, unfortunately, because good film is good film is good film. Yeah, it doesn't matter what genre it's in. It doesn't even matter if it's genre or not. You know, a good movie's a good movie, just like a good story is a good story, right? So, yep. I think this is a good story. I think it's a, a nice kind of different look at a World War II angle. Plus, you know, there's not a whole lot of, like, really kind of, in my opinion, there's not a lot of great World War II films set in that kind of uh, Rommel, Desert Fox type nope. uh, era of the war. I mean, there's a few, but... That, that not a whole lot. It's not. It's usually you know, European in nature. It's usually in Germany or in Poland, Auschwitz or something. You know, something like that. You know what I mean? Usually the the standard uh, places of terror that you know all the stuff happened took place in. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. So it's always kind of nice to see a different touch. Yeah, a different touch. Yeah, no, very true. I almost wanted to see uh, Jean Claude show up as the Legionnaire and do some yeah. roundhouse kicks. Would have been amazing. Oh, yeah. Ventura would have punched him in the stomach, though. He'd have One been shot for. would have been like Chuck Zito, man. Done for. Yeah. He'd have been done for thereby. That's right. <laughs> C'est fini. <laughs> but that's all I really got. That's all that you do your make or breaks and stuff. Nice. Okay. Make or break. I like the ending, man. I feel like I could go with a lot of scenes. There's so many tense scenes and name dropping Canadians and. All sorts of cool shit. Uh, I love the opening. I think the opening is great. Sets things up well. I like the ending. There's a scene in a parade. I think really just clarifies and crystallizes and punctuates everything perfectly. And that that actor, the look on their face, and, and kind of the way they have that that style of footage where they're blending together a scene from the film with the current um, the current footage of what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, I really love that. I think it looks great. Um, MVT. Fuck. Yeah, I know. I know. I want to go with Ventura because he's my man, but the cast was all great. I'm going to go with the setting. You know, as great as the cast is, the message is, um, the direction is, I'm going to go with the the backdrop itself because I think it lends itself. What I really want to, I'm going to go with it. I'll just. Ugh, fuck oh, the ensemble the ensemble because I guess you could have put them in other places and this would have been good I'm going go with the ensemble they're all very good well, they well I mean yeah because you, you can argue like let's say let's take for example a film we were talking about earlier on Facebook let's talk about Sabotage there's an ensemble that doesn't fucking work oh man so I mean that's like yeah. a train wreck of an ensemble so yeah. to me if that ensemble would have worked the film may have been a little bit better than what it was and not as comically bad as it was yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> You know, but, uh, you know, I think the ensemble in this is so pitch perfect that I have to agree with you. That That's why I had a hard time. Too. I mean, I want to go Ventura as well because he's got the face. He's got the look. He's got the charisma. His character has the best arc. Yeah. But every character has a really pretty solid arc in this. They do. It doesn't feel a stalker sort of archetype. 
Mm-hmm. It's good. Uh, like everybody gets a moment, you know. Yeah, they do, man. Absolutely, they do. But it doesn't feel like they're just setting it up moment. Here's his moment. Like it all feels very organic, which is the mark of a good filmmaker, right? I mean, it's it's not demonstrative. It's not Edgar Wright demonstrative. It all feels very oh, organic. Yeah. There you go. Uh, my score, I'm gonna say a seven point. Say seven point five. And it's a very uh, seven point five. Okay, I think we're fading. We're, I'm losing connections with you every now and then. So okay, not losing connection, but you're fading in and out every now and then. So it's like uh, you'll say seven, and then it'll be like ten seconds, and then I hear. Got to adjust the pom pom on top of my head. It doubles as an antenna. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're twisted a little bit to the right there, babe. Yeah, man. <laughs> Tune in Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, my make or break. I'm gonna go with the landmine scene. I really like that. Kind That's of some, an unexpected moment in there, and it's uh, really it's nice and properly tense as well. Oh man. Um, again, there's a lot of moments and similarities between this and Wages of Fear and uh, Sorcerer. So I think if you like those two films, I think you owe it to yourself in a way to see this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, because I know we got, you know, most of those names you tagged. I know most of those guys like either one or the other of those two films more than the other. So, you know, some people are more sorcerer guys, some I'm people more are more sorcerer. wages of fear guys. Yeah, and I'm more wages of fear, but it's not by much. Yeah, no, they're but both still, tremendous. Yeah, they're both, you know, it's a tremendous idea, tremendous story, tremendous suspense, right? So, um, uh, but I'll go with the landmine scene. My MVT is the ensemble. I, I wanted to go with Ventura thought about the director but i'm not familiar enough with his work to kind of really give it to him because i mean i kind of always justify that by in my in my ratings with the mvts by not giving to directors if i've never seen any of their films i mean i feel like i'm not really kind of you know unless it's something that just completely blows my mind i just don't really see how i can give it to them so i'll give it to the ensemble really the whole everybody involved in this thing really should get an mvt in this case almost i know it's a bit of a cheat but really yeah it's true my score is, uh, it, uh, you know, we're lauding it and stuff, but I do think it. this film does at moments, at 92 minutes even, it does drag a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. There's some conversations that aren't as interesting as others. There's some moments that are a little, I don't know, they just they, they seem to kind of hang around a little longer than they need to. So. And if those scenes didn't feel that way, we, would, we wouldn't have been talking about a very good film. We'd be talking about a great film. Yeah, and I think that this is a very good film, and that's why I'm going to give it a 7.75. Nice. Yeah, I, was I think it's very almost. good. It's not quite eight territory. When we start getting into eight, to me, you're starting to get into and, – and, and you know, a lot of our listeners have always kind of said this. We Usually when we score eight or higher, it's usually you know almost like a masterpiece. Yep. Uh, and I kind of feel that way too because anything kind of above an eight is either a must-own or a must-see. Uh, this is – it's right in there, not quite – Maybe for everybody, but for those who love this kind of story, I think it's a must-own or a must-see. Yeah. So, like, you you tagged those people earlier and those friends of ours that listen to the show, and, you know, John and, and Terry and and those folks, uh, I think they're really going to like this. So. Oh, totally. And knowing Terry, he's probably already seen it. Yeah, Terry's probably uh, saw it like 10, 15 years ago. He's probably podcasted <laughs> yeah. about it already. Yeah, he probably has. <laughs> I probably even listened to it and don't even realize I've listened to it. and Still don't even realize I know anything about this movie. <laughs> and if you don't listen to Paleo Cinema, you really need to do yourself a favor. If you love film that basically covers everything from you know turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, uh, up to what 20 years ago. So I guess that brings Terry up to what 95. I think yeah, I think he's up to about the 90, uh, early 90s. So he he knows his stuff. You know he does the hardest thing in, in our 
in our world, which is he does a one man podcast, but he is so knowledgeable and accessible and it never feels like he's droning on. He's engaging. I mean, Terry is someone I really admire what he does because he's, yeah. he's a world wealth of knowledge, uh, personable. You know, It'd be great to get him on sometime, but he does I, live in the, he lives in the future. He does live in the future, man. I'll tell you what, I've always thought we got to get Terry on. It's a shame we never have. Get Terry on sometime. It's, it's yeah. criminal. It's criminal that it, we'll we, get him on sometime. We'll work it out sometime. It, I'd but, love for Terry to drop for those some. Who don't know. He is in, he's in the great continent of Australia. So it's a bit of a time zone, uh, nightmare <laughs> yeah he's like uh you know yeah, he's way ahead of us a uh, full full day almost seems like yeah i think he's he's like um yeah it's lunchtime tomorrow or something or yeah i don't i don't know i don't know what time it is right now for him yeah it's uh it's too bad we got to get him on to drop some uh it's always so weird we have all these friends in australia because like when it's hot here it's cold there Oh, and yeah. They're complaining about the cold, and we're complaining about the heat. And it's, then when we're freezing here, it's hot there. It's two o'clock in the afternoon tomorrow, right now for him. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Thanks. And Morris, of course. And yeah, all of yeah, our all friends over there. Our Australia, we got a lot. That's of a great in people in Australia, man. Yeah, we get a lot of downloads in Australia. It's like uh, fourth highest. It's fourth or fourth or fifth of our downloads uh, come out of Australia. We're fucking huge in Australia. We're huge, man, in the outback. We need to get a larger inseam in Australia. Right, right. <laughs> Looks like Canada Foster's down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about a country that has a fly problem. Yeah, man. Oh, oh. oh geez. <laughs> Wake and fright, man. Yeah, wake and fright. Those flies are fucking the rover. Oh. Those flies, man. Nasty. Yeah, that's true. All right. Uh, we are going to take a short break, and we're going to deal with a Frenchman of a different sort. I wonder what Lino Ventura thought of Marcel Marceau. Very interesting. Uh, who knows? Uh, who knows? Hope did they ran in say. different circles, we could say. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they probably did. Yeah. Probably, probably, you know, he probably did give him the old uh, same taint, different tinge uh, trademark there. I wonder if, um, if Marcel had pancake makeup on his taints. Uh, the amount of times he probably put makeup on, yeah, I had to say he probably digested that stuff. He probably had it all over him. Yeah, he probably, yeah, yeah, he probably had a few mom-like shits in his day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that silent but violent. I'm I hope not, I don't offend any moms that might listen to the show. <laughs> yeah, we, well, so far Sammy's offended uh, hairy men, mimes, <laughs> uh, possibly, <laughs> we both possibly offended our sponsors. I and just, the Italians, uh, the Italian family of the Piccolo Poopicolos or whatever. Piccolo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trapeze artist everywhere or boycotting the GGTMC. Oh, hate us now. We just dropped <laughs> off, man. That was our sixth biggest download bracket was the trapeze artists. The travelers of the world. Of the, world. <laughs> the traveling entertainers of the world. We just lost them. Uh, our name is Mud with the travelers of the world. <laughs> All right. I think, it, I think for the public it would be better if our name was Mud as opposed to Peak Local Plus. That's right, man. Oh, man. It's we awful. Are... <laughs> Literally and figuratively. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, boy, that night recording. All right, we are going to take a short break, uh, get ourselves in order, and Sammy's going to mime the next review. We'll be yes. uh, right back. Hey, this is Scott of Married with Clickers. Tune in to hear my wife Kat and me discuss all sorts of movies. We'll cover everything from The Lost Weekend to Weekend at Bernie's, from The Big Sleep to Big Mama's House. Well, maybe not Big Mama's House. And the great thing about Kat is that she's not afraid to speak her mind. And would you be surprised to hear he was nominated for Best Actor that year? For that film? For that film. 
<laughs> but don't take my word for it. Just listen to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema has to say about our show. Oh, it's a husband and wife show, and they discuss movies and stuff. You have a very wife-husband show. High praise indeed. So come find us at marriedwithclickers.libson.com. It will save your life. Or maybe just help you kill an hour. Yellow. Here we are. We are about to review 1974's Shanks, directed by William Castle. So an American icon of film, uh, starring a French icon of, I guess, art, uh, mimicry, miming. Um, yeah, I think, that, again, a film I'd never heard of. This is all of episode, as we've said. Um I, was just, I read about this one. I read about this one, and I can't remember if it was Fangoria or Rue Morgue or some horror-tinged magazine. I read about it some time back, and the only reason why is I remember that poster with the two fingers and the Marcel Marceau head, and I thought, that's just fucking bizarre. It is bizarre. Now, I have to say, the thing that really drew me to this was Marcel Marceau, the, mo- the most famous mime of all time. Listen, if you are a if you are a god to Alejandro Jodorowsky, you're doing something right. Yes. So the fact that it's it was directed by William Castle, an uh, you know American icon of horror film and just uh, showmanship and yeah and salesmanship and everything else. Uh, kind of P.T. Barnum of his P.T. Barnum, absolutely. With Marcel Marceau, the world's most famous mime, and you know much loved the world over as an artist uh, in his own right. So. Uh, I'll synopsize this, and I guess you'll take the lead on it here. Yeah. Um, a mute puppeteer, you can guess who's played, who plays that, uses a deceased scientist's invention to control dead bodies like puppets. <clears throat> okay, so Marcel Marceau, William Castle, 1974. And when I was growing up, Marcel Marceau was everywhere. Um, I remember watching a lot of television shows, and they would always talk about him, and he would be on random variety shows like, you know, I'm kind of old. So there was still some variety shows on television and he would pop up on occasion and stuff. And you never forget him because he, you know, even though I don't know much about the art of the mom, uh, he easily is the most recognizable and probably maybe arguably the most talented, uh, mom of all time that rhymes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, this movie's pretty interesting because there's other actors in here that you almost feel like had to take some mimicry. You know, acting can be mimicry anyway, but you, 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 you get some scenes in here where some other actors are doing some things that Marceau would probably do, and they do it pretty well, actually. They're famous mimes, actually. Oh, okay. The couple? That makes sense. Yeah, the couple. Yeah, yeah the couple are um, world-renowned uh, mimes as well. Yeah, that would make sense. That would make sense. All right, so this film, I had never seen it. I had read about it, but I had totally forgotten about it, and I didn't even know I had put it out. I thought, you know, it was one of those films that you had to find and through other means. I didn't even know if it ever had a VHS release or anything. I didn't know any of that. So uh, when you picked it, I was pretty happy because I had been, I'd read about it so long ago, but I don't recall, you know, ever, you know, seeing it anywhere. I mean, I would have remembered that poster for sure. Um. But like I said, yeah, Marcel was around quite a bit. Now, he had a great face. Uh, not only was he a great mom, but his face, he had a great look anyway. He always oh, wore totally. those shirts, but uh, <laughs> those uh, striped shirts uh, with the sideways, you know, the vert- not the vertical stripes, but the other way. Horizontal. 
Yeah, the horizontal stripes and the the over uh, over overall type look, and even when he's not a mom in this, he still looks like a mom. But uh, you know, whatever. And this film feels like it's a weird film, like out of place. And the immediate we talked about this a little bit on the phone uh, about a week ago, almost a week ago, that you get a real strong Tim Burton vibe from this movie. Huge. Like you got to feel Tim Burton saw this. I mean, you got to feel he saw it somehow, some way. At some point, because the first thing I thought about was Edward Scissorhands and that it kind of takes place in this kind of imaginary world that's only, you know, just a little off. I mean, it could be, you know, Burbank, California, the suburbs, but it could also be like this place that doesn't even exist with the single colored houses and and the, the castle on the hill and all that kind of stuff. Now, this even has some of those same kind of things where, you know, Marceau is. Actually, his character is invited to an old man inventor's house, which is up on a hill, mm-hmm. and it kind of has this gothic structure. Who's also played by Marceau. Yeah, who's also played by Marceau. I don't know if that's his voice. He he didn't... It is his voice. Okay, okay. I thought it was. He he didn't do a whole lot. I mean, I don't know if I've seen a lot. Well, I've actually never pursued any interviews with him. I know he's given print interviews over the years. I know there's a great joke with him in Mel Brooks' silent movie where he's the only character that says anything in that whole movie, which is actually a pretty good joke. Yeah. That the greatest mom of all time would be the one that does that says the one line of dialogue in a movie. That's pretty inspired to say the least. Oh, it totally is. But uh, yeah, you got to feel like you know Burton saw this, and you know a little bit of this stuff kind of comes off from Edward Scissorhands because the old character is kind of like kind of becomes a almost like a uh, like a father figure to Marceau who has a, a brother-in-law who's a easily one of the biggest drunks I've ever seen on screen. I mean, this guy throws down the gin and vodka like it's nothing, man. He goes hard. Yeah, he does go hard. And uh, he's married to a woman that I think you might see why he drinks so much. I don't know what I don't know what that thing was, but anyway. And she's shrill. <laughs> oh, man. Ooh. But again, you know, now that you tell me they're moms, world-famous moms, uh, that makes sense because they really they act very well with their faces and their bodies. Both of them do. It feels like a little bit of a riff on uh, not only the Tim Burton thing, but, you know, you could argue this with Tim Burton anyway. Almost everything he does kind of comes, like, from the Universal Monster thing or the the kind of a little bit of hammer and stuff, but, like, the Frankenstein mythos and stuff. And, of course, that's here, too. Oh, big time. What you've what you really got, and Will kind of said in the, in the um, synopsis, is you have this master of puppetry who does these kind of shows for kids on the – in this in this town, which looks like it could be in California or France or anywhere, but it, it's kind of out of place, out of time. You can't really tell. There's not really any cars around. It almost feels like it's it almost feels like it's set in uh, you know the early like or the mid 1800s in some ways, but then you see like Marlboro cigarettes, so you know it's kind of set in a modern time too. And William Castle's character himself is kind of dressed in a more modern way. He's in there as just a shopkeeper. He's got a yeah, he's got a he's got a cigar and everything, and he's looking pretty much like a guy from like the 1950s or something, you know. So it, it all feels, I think, very fairy tale. Yeah, it does. It does. It feels like a. It, it, that's why I say when I say it feels like a Tim Burton film, because almost all of Burton's films, even Big Eyes, which I watched recently, they all have that kind of fairy tale quality in some way. Uh, Big Eyes, I didn't mention this when I talked about it, but it has a, a narration. The narration of that film is done by Danny Houston. So Danny Houston has that great, uh, you know, Houston voice that, you know, well, you know, you know, that way that uh, John oh, Houston would totally. talk. And uh, so it kind of gives it this kind of vibe that's a little off center. You know what I mean? So very cool. Uh, but the locations are beautiful. And I really like that element of the 
kind of electricity, bringing things to life. There's a great moment with a slimy frog. And oh, really uh, good, yeah. But this is a this is very much a this is very much the macabre macabre William Castle. This is there's no gimmicks here. You know, this is past that period of time. I mean, he had produced, I guess, uh, Rosemary's Baby by this point. This is the last this is the last thing he directed, right? So he, I can't remember when he died. He I don't think he died too much longer after this though. He's pretty skinny. I mean, I always knew him as kind of this kind of big hardy man, but he looks pretty uh, frail in this in some ways. Um, anyway, uh, I like the uh, the angle of the electricity and bringing the animals to life and turning people into puppets. That's kind of a fun and kind of grotesque. And uh, you, you have to wonder, of course, you know, you, you're thinking outside the realm of normal film thinking when you think this, but obviously bodies decompose and stuff, and these bodies are around for days and stuff, and he's controlling them. Marcel's controlling them with this little remote control around his belt and stuff, and you're thinking, well, these bodies got to start stinking at some point. <laughs> You know, but uh, oh, yeah. they never they never really addressed that. They kind of addressed the death thing eventually with a little girl, which is also a bit of an odd thing. It's definitely a seventies thing. That odd that little girl moment, that little girl stuff. That kind of pre, that kind of almost out of adolescent adolescence uh, girl that kind of like admires Marceau, but you feel like could also be in love with him as well. Kind of yeah. like that that teen crush. They don't really pursue it nowadays. You you're not even really allowed to even do that kind of stuff practically. But uh, because, you know, the angle is too fearsome for some people and for critics and for ratings and things like that. But, you know, the you know young teen girls do develop crushes on older men. That's a pretty natural thing. It's not unnatural at all. Um, and they don't really go anywhere dark with it or anything. No. Well, I mean, outside of the fact that this movie's a, this is a movie that deals heavily with death. <laughs> yes. Uh, very heavily. Uh, this film is surprisingly dark in spots. I was kind of surprised. Now. For a first in cinema history, what I always love about movies, I love it when they give us a first. I've never seen Death by Remote Control Cock before. Man, that, and of course, we should say Rooster. Yeah. Because we've seen <laughs> yeah. Death by Remote Control Cock, I'm sure about. <laughs> well, if we haven't, we want to. Yes. But, uh, and chances are, there is a movie with Death by Remote Control Cock. It's pretty it's intense. It's fun to this say, Death by Remote Control Cock. Town, man. Yeah, he does. <laughs> He's really got him hooked up on those electrodes. <laughs> oh, big time. I wouldn't want to be that actor. I'll tell you that. I mean, I hope that was a fake rooster, but I can't tell. But, I mean, even this, it's a little too close for comfort, man. Roosters are – I don't know if you've ever been around one, but, I mean, they mean business. They don't fuck around. Oh, it's true. Uh, they're, they're, they're bold bastards, you know. They and won't back big. down. Yeah, they won't back down either. They'll come, you know, they'll come at you. They'll say, come at me, bro. Come on, you know. They'll, 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 that thing, they'll, they'll do that. They won't back down. So. Oh, yeah. Um, the, 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 the kind of puppetry elements of the film are fun and they're actually kind of deeper. I think I always like puppetry in movies because they can, they can kind of give the personality to a lonely soul. Like, uh, Marceau's character obviously is a, a damaged and, uh, lonely person. Uh, he doesn't really have a, uh, a love interest in his life outside of his puppets, he uh, has a very bad home life, and so he puts all of his life kind of, you know, kind of his dreams and hopes into these puppet shows and, you know, his kind of craft and stuff. And, and for him to find a new avenue for that, it's pretty great when he kind of gets so excited about it and, and things like that. There's actually, you know, it's funny. There's some similarities in this film and in uh, Kevin Smith's Tusk, and I know Kevin Smith probably hasn't seen this. But there's some similarities in the shots. Oh, that's interesting. Some of the shots, yeah. 
but also with Tusk, there are some similarities in Tim Burton's work with some of the shots too. So, and I know Tim Burton and Kevin Smith don't always get along after the Superman lives fiasco. So, but it is interesting because there are some Burton-esque kind of moments in uh, uh, Smith's Tusk. And I felt like after watching, you know, I can't say Smith saw this and he was influenced by Shanks. I do know, I don't know this for a fact, but I mean, I have a really strong hunch Tim Burton saw this. But I'd but be yeah, stunned if Tim Burton didn't see this. Yeah, yeah. So one of the great things about this movie is you get the gothic mansion, you get the girl who's transfixed by the the puppet corpses, just like she's transfixed by the puppets themselves. She finds out, uh, you know, they're dead. That's not a spoiler, I don't think. And that freaks her out, but she kind of accepts it eventually. And there's this, you know, kind of a romantic dinner scene. Again, there's, there's scenes in here that are, you know, a little odd to today's standards. But, you know, again, we're talking about Marcel Marceau and uh, puppets controlled by electrodes made of real people. So it's an oddball film to begin with. But then it takes uh, an interesting turn, in my opinion. <laughs> At oh, some point, so. that GGTMC gang shows up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-uh. And for anybody that ventures to watch this movie and has been in our group for a long time, you're going to know exactly what we mean oh, when you man. see this gang of roughnecks that show up. <laughs> oh, yeah. They are straight out of GGTMC central casting. I mean, <laughs> there's no doubt in my mind. They are straight out of that. Mustaches, weird fashion choices. Yeah. <laughs> uh, rape. All those things that we've talked about over the years that make, well, potential rape. I don't think there's actually any rape scene. It's close. But, it, well, yeah, and not only that, but it's with an under, well, what, what I think is an underage girl. I, they never really Agreed. say how old the girl is. So I, I shouldn't really even say that it's an underage girl. She she strikes me as as underage in the thing, but it, it never really it's never really proven or said. I just I felt that way uh, with the the young female character. But that gang that gang is classic. Uh, that last ten or fifteen minutes with that gang is <laughs> is uh, it's such a weird in a way. It's almost like it's almost like the hiccups or something. Like it interrupts your day. It, it's it's such a weird kind of you know when we did to be twenty when and we talked about the ending. Oh, how brutal it got! Or yeah, even the I ninth mean, configuration. Yeah, it's like yeah, well, yeah, it reminds me of that too because you know that bar scene in the ninth configuration has no business being there. I'm glad it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm so happy it's there, but and I'm so happy this gang exists in this one. This motorcycle gang is great. Well, <laughs> we we gotta say. <laughs> You do know who two of the gang members are, right? Yes, yes. One of them is Don <laughs> Kalfa, right? From Return of the Living Dead. This is like 13 years before Return of the Living Dead, but he looks about 40 years older in Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who's the other one that I would have known? Oh, Sammy. I, I know, I know. Sammy. I, I, I remember, it's been a week since I swatched this. So. Larry. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. How can I forget? Larry. Oh, man, I'm glad we don't have a phone number anymore. <laughs> He'd be calling me and giving me hell, man. Oh, yeah. I hope he doesn't know how to use an MP3 converter. <laughs> <laughs> I think it what throws you off is in this. I think he has, like, blondish hair. Well, yeah, well, in, in the late 60s, early 70s, Larry would wear the uh, the kind of blondish, brownish look. Um. And uh, that did kind of throw me off occasionally because, as you know, 
the Larry Bishop we're all familiar with nowadays is, you know, I mean, the man's in his upper 60s, and he, you know, he's got the jet black hair and the jet black mustache. and Oh, yeah. You know, he's always trying to look, you know, 40 years younger than he actually is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I remember now. I can't believe I forgot. As a matter of fact, I should have. It's funny that I would remember Kalfa and I would remember Bishop of all people. I've never seen Kalfa in anything else except Return of Living Dead. So to see him as like a biker, <laughs> it's it's like that Jeff Goldblum moment in Death Wish. You know? What yeah, I mean? yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. And this, he's like, he's he's a biker named Einstein. Larry Bishop's name is Napoleon. Yeah, yeah, that's him. That's him. Yeah. It's great. It, it, the, the gang, the, the the worst, if I could say there's one fault for this movie for me, yes. is that the gang doesn't show up sooner. Yeah, and this, what's great is, too, there's the dude um, there's the dude named Goliath. His real name's Biff Mannard. <laughs> the fucking, the chick in the gang, Helena Kalianotis, Matahari. I mean, she's a rough-looking dame. Oh, yeah, she looks like she's been through the ringer a few times. She's, she's Greek. Um Man, it's it's uh it's quite the gang. Amondo is there's a dude in this. His real oh no, his real name. Sorry, his real name that he goes by. His stage name is Mondo. Yeah, he goes by Genghis Khan in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they, they are a great looking gang, and it's one of those elements where unlike the ninth configuration, like that Steve Sanders stuff is is just the right amount of length. Like you, you're looking forward to that. You get to it. It lasts just the right amount of time. And then we get back to the story. It's a weird derivative kind of tangent off of the story. Yeah. But it's fun because when you rewatch the ninth configuration, you get to look forward to it. Well, if you're me, yes, or me, <laughs> that's right. You know, we're waiting to see somebody do the splits on a bar. You know, we're not really, we're not in it for the deep psychological value. <laughs> the you know, eyeliner and the splits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe it says something about us psychologically. But, uh, <laughs> but this is the same kind of instance in a way. It's a, it's the thing where, you know, you almost wish the gang would have shown up a little earlier. And I'm not saying that that's bad because I think the film's fine up until that point. This The thing is, this movie, the, the puppetry stuff's fine. But, I mean, after a while, I started to get kind of bored with it. Mm-hmm. And the gang didn't show up soon enough. And I think that... That drama, that kind of hook would have added to the movie uh, a little bit more if it would have came sooner. Take Dawn of uh, the Dead. Yeah, the movie's not overlong or nothing, but at some point, I, I mean, I did get tired of the the puppetry stuff. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I got tired of it because it was cool and it was quirky and, and I liked it and it was kind of funny and in some ways kind of macabre and cute and definitely that balance that that you know that tightrope that burton walks all the time but after a while i was like come on let's move along i mean i just feel like now he's just you know we we spend like 30 minutes it seems like just impressing this little girl with our gadget mm-hmm. and I, I got a little bored with that stuff so when the gang showed up i mean i got riveted again i was like yeah that's what i'm talking about yeah you know we got don calfa and larry bishop in a motorcycle gang Man. this is obviously based on reality <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, that uh, only thing that would have made it better is if William Smith would have been one of the uh, guys too. Uh, yeah, because Smith and uh, Bishop have done a few things together. I told you there's there's one I think it's called Hot Chrome and and leather and Hot leather. Chrome, I think yeah. where Bishop and Smith in it, and it's got a great scene between <laughs> between Smith and Bishop where he's hey, uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a boulder. And Bishop ends up grabbing this boulder. This boulder's as big as he is. In real life, this boulder would have weighed six tons, but he's big. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. You know. 
But it's just ridiculous that Smith would say, I want you to get a boulder and I want you to put it on top of that hill. Oh, I know. You know? It's like, <laughs> what kind of Superman is Larry Bishop, you know? He's Larry Bishop. Yeah, he is Larry Bishop. I wonder if he's got any more films left in him. Oh. I would still like to cover Hellrad someday, with maybe with Zom present for that one. <laughs> that would be amazing. Because I would like to talk about it. Did you ever end up watching it? You never no. ended up watching it either. No. God, it's, it's so bad. But you know what? It might be so bad. At this point, I might go back and watch it. I might love it. Yeah. You know, it could be one of those things. Well, I, I highly doubt it. But it could be one of those things that, you know, maybe I caught it at the wrong time. It's so bad, I'd be willing to watch it again, though. I can tell you that. Well, I would be, too, just to. And we got to get Zom on for that one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I really liked uh, the the uh, all those angles, and of course, the, you know, the outside world is kind of evil. That that whole element that that's also a very Tim Burton thing, if you think about it. Tim Burton's oh, films, very much so. People living in the shelter, sort of sheltered in their own world and cr- universe yeah. of their own creation. And then when an outside source, be it the government, be it uh, the outside world, outside the neighborhood, be it well, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, he lives in Dreamland where he lives, but once he gets out on the road, there's all these horrors and. And things, and even oh, though they're all time. kind of, yeah, they're all kind of, you know, made light. It's still, you know, that element of uh, the safety being released, you know, and that seems to be a theme in all of Burton's films, like this childlike wonder, uh, this protection in your, you know, home from all these those outside elements that can mess all that up. And a little of that's here. I, I just got to believe that Tim Burton has seen this. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I just thought the similarities were striking. I, I really did. Oh, I mean, both of us uh, saw it immediately because it was one of the first yeah. things we mentioned when we spoke. And I don't know if anybody else that listens to the show, I'm sure there is, have seen this, but I'd be curious if they thought the same thing because uh, I definitely got that vibe quick. And, you know, we should say this. Don't be afraid to send Our email is still active. Don't be afraid to send us an email. We do read the emails. We do uh, reply to the emails and stuff. We just don't read them on the uh, show anymore. So if you want to send us something, tell, I mean, somebody recently sent us something saying, you know, hey, you guys should do Sharky's Machine. Well, we know we should do Sharky's Machine. We just haven't done it yet. Yes, we would love <laughs> we to. We will do Sharky's Machine at some point. Or comment in the group, too. I mean, on yeah. you know what yeah. we're doing. We, we'd love to still hear from you guys. Yeah, and, and we love to interact. We just, you know, some people don't like Facebook. I understand that. And, you yeah. know, if you don't want to do it that way, that's fine. You can interact with us with email, though. We're not, uh, we're not celebrities, trust me. No, we're just average Joes who like to talk about movies. So if you send us something, we'll reply to it. So I just want to make sure we get that out there because I feel like sometimes we, since we don't do the feedback section anymore, um, that people can't interact with us. But you can interact with us in multiple ways. Yes. But yeah, that's all I got. Okay, cool. So yeah, again, I love that all of put this out. I never heard of it. It's such a cool little film. Uh, I should say I should say I didn't say in my review, but the blue is not it's not a it's not a super blue. It's not outstanding. It feels no. like a little you know, it's got the cracks DVD. and the pops. Yeah, it's not a masked remastered uh, high definition transfer we're talking about here. No, exactly. Now Jack Hill was involved in this production as well. Was he? Yeah, his name was in the credits, assisted by Jack Hill. Huh. So I, I have to wonder if maybe he was involved with some of the the you know what portion. You know, he was involved with whether it was the biker stuff or, or who knows. But uh, yeah, yeah, well, who knows with Jack Hill? Yeah, it could be anything. I mean, he's he's one of the great genre directors, right? Absolutely. Maybe. You know, one thing too you didn't mention. Um, I quite liked was I really loved the uh, the score by Alex North. I think it's quite good. It is good, and he's he's a very famous um, composer. Spartacus, Goodfellas. You know, heavy duty, right? So it's kind of right. cool that he got involved nice. with this. He did Goodfellas? Yeah. 
Man, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Nice. So, very cool. You learn something new every day. I didn't know that. I had no idea. Yeah. I wonder if Martin Scorsese's seen Shanks. <laughs> I bet you he has. <laughs> he probably has, yeah. Let me see here. I should say, we said Jack Hill, that uh, the uh, U, our other sponsor, Arrow US, they're actually going to release Pit Stop here in the States on the US label. Which is too. a cool little film, like we said. Um, I'm trying to find his credit now here. He did Carney, which is a cool little film we both love. I think he might have been North involved did? with the soundtrack. Yeah. North did? Yeah, okay. Carney's a cool one. Carney's a cool movie. Carney's a, a very cool film. Very cool movie. Very yeah. overlooked. Yeah, I agree. That's another one that's really overlooked. I'd love to talk about. Busey puts in a great turn. Robbie Robertson's great. Jodie Foster's Fox. great. Yeah, that whole that's movie's a great. Fucking cool little film. Um, I wish someone would put it out under the more other than Warner Archive. Um, yeah, it would be nice. Um, so yeah, you know, we you talked on a lot about the things that um, I would have mentioned as well. Certainly, you know, simpatico, uh, feels very dreamy, very fairy tale like. Um, I like that. I think it's shot well enough. You know, um, it's low enough to the ground. I, you know, I f- in that we can see a lot of the the puppet stuff, the quote unquote puppet stuff, and the miming. It, much like with shooting martial arts, I mean, you want to be able to get the, the natural talent on screen. Mm-hmm. Right. I have to say, Marce- Marcel Marceau, were you going to say something? No, 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 no. I'm moving around. That's all I'm doing. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> I should say I don't want to be misquoted. looks like Alex North was involved in the music department of Goodfellas, but I don't think he actually scored it. Maybe anyway. maybe, maybe they just took something from another film. Yeah, another piece or something. But uh, any of, in any event, um, I think Marcel Marceau has a, you know, I mentioned this, a great look. He looked yeah, great. He's got presence, you know, he big has time. presence, you know, good looking older guy kind of looks a little bit to me like, um, like, uh, Pacino's character in cruising. If he was older. Yeah. A little we bit. should say we, we, I didn't say, and you didn't say either, but Marceau, uh, for those who don't know, I mean, actually survived the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, he was, right. uh, I think his dad died at Auschwitz. And uh, I feel like like the day the clown cried and some of the and life is beautiful in those films. I feel like that, you know, he had saved some children as well from going to the gas chamber as well. So I, I, I can't verify that. But I mean, I do know that uh, he was there during that time. And I do know his father died at Auschwitz. I do know that. Terrible. That is terrible. Because, uh, yeah, he's uh, I guess uh, I can't remember. I can't remember how he ended up there. And all the stories behind it and stuff, but uh, yeah, Marcel's a fascinating, fascinating person. I'm not, like I said, I'm not the world's. It's not like I sit around and look at memory and be like, oh, the brilliance. But I mean, I do, I do think it takes a certain kind of talent, obviously, that to do that. And uh, uh, and but but he was a great actor anyway. I mean, I think he could have. He didn't do very many films. I think he only did like maybe fifteen or twenty movies. Yeah, and a lot shows. of it was little bit parts. I know he yeah. was, uh, and I didn't realize this until. I had looked at his credits, but you know he has a small part in Barbarella as Professor Ping. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't remember if he talks in that one either or not. No, nor do I. But it took nor me a I. long time to to realize that uh, John Philip Law was in Barbarella. I mean, I'd oh yeah, yeah, that for years. Yeah, no, I know. Oh, here to to talk about we like to talk about sometimes the influence, right? With Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. Buster Keaton, and so on. Marceau Marceau was five years old. His mother took him to see a Charlie Chaplin film, and that's yeah. what inspired him. So. Yeah, he always, became obsessed. He became obsessed, so it's really cool to see 
you know, the genesis of that. And I guess his first public performance was to 3,000 troops after the liberation of Paris in 1944 in August, so after the war. So this ties in again with what we just spoke about. Yeah, it does. Film, it does right? With our previous it, film, yeah. right? Yeah, and so. it should say in that trivia and stuff in there somewhere about his dad and about Auschwitz and stuff like that, too. I remember reading about it quite some time ago. You know, as I've gotten older, when you're young, I don't think we can really understand the the magnitude of of suffering and death uh, and war and things like that. But I'm just reading that stuff. I can't imagine. I can't even imagine you know, being a child and being in a camp and you know, your father died. Jesus, it's just, it's just, I can't even put into words how terrible that is. Yeah. Um, oh, but, um, but yeah, he says his biggest inspirations were Chaplin, Keaton, Marx Brothers. And he blended the 19th century Harlequin uh, with gestures of those guys. And, um, you know, off he went. So, yeah, I think, you know, you know, Jacques Tati, I think probably in turn was influenced by him or maybe influenced each other. I don't know where Tati's start came. He was, you know, working in the 50s and stuff. So does mom, does mom, and you have the Internet, but I don't have anything. So I'm going off my own stupid little southern mind here. But my memory can sometimes pick, remember certain things. But does mimicry, does the art of the mime come from Paris and France? Uh, I would guess it does. But um, let's take a look while we're uh, – maybe it could have been like traveling performers. I feel like Jodorowsky learned in – he trained in Paris. He correct? did train under Marceau. Yeah, that's why I said yeah, he, like, so he adores him. Yeah. Uh, well, I know looks, he has uh, – you know, and some of our favorite filmmakers and some of our favorite film people, Marceau is like, you know, like Buster Keaton. He's like a god to him. Like oh, Chaplin, yeah. and, and he's important to some people as Chaplin or Keaton or whatever. Yo, yeah, big time. So mimes, um, for whatever it's worth, we're going to stumble through this, but it uh, looks like uh, ancient Greece was the original time. Okay. However, that it kind of got killed off, and then uh, it, France was which picked it up. And um, I feel like know, all cultures kind of have something like something that. comparable. It looks like they they had sort of cobbled together some the Japanese no theater. With Italian uh, Commedia dell'arte and some other things, you know, just kind of made a stew out of it, and off you go. Yeah. And so, now, you know, mostly when you see mimes nowadays, it's mostly just street performers. But it was always kind of that. But I mean, it, they're not really. It's kind of weird. They, they've uh, the reverie isn't quite there anymore. No, no, it's not, and it's cool. It seems to a, be a dying art. Well, I'll tell you, you there's, it's very powerful when you get a good mime. It's we went to a, we take the kids to a busker fest every year. It's right downtown Toronto, and uh, buskers from all around the world come. And I'll never forget, maybe two or three years ago, there was this dude. He was dressed up as Elvis Presley. Okay, He was on a circular platform. He was head-to-toe covered in silver paint. His hair was silver. His face was silver. His sunglasses were silver. He had a silver jacket, silver boot, everything. Just head-to-toe silver, not an inch of flesh showing. Mm-hmm. And you would put money in his hat, and he would almost be like um, – like a mechanical Elvis. So he, oh, okay. he would do like the, the very sort of iconic Elvis gestures and dances and, you know, with his knees and his arms and stuff and kind of the, you know, all this stuff. And it was just, it was mesmerizing. My kids were just blown away. I was blown away. You know, you putting money in this guy's hat and stuff and, you know, it just, it's always stuck with me, but it goes to show the power of, of the mime. You know, when you see someone yeah. good, I mean, it's become such a, Unfortunately, I think with 80s kind of comedies, like where Americans go to Europe and stuff, 
it feels like mimes became sort of the butt of a lot of jokes and there was like a lot of like mime violence in films. It feels like <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, I know. Mime, mime between between the moms and the Har- the Hari Kari's or whatever they call them. Oh, the Hari Krishnas, yeah. The Hari Krishnas, yeah. There's a lot of unnecessary Hari Krishna violence. Man, there's a lot of like un- Hari Krishnas just you know peace love kind of giving you a flower, man. Like they're getting beat down in films. And moms are getting beat down. It's it seemed like there was a period in the '80s where you'd watch a film and anytime somebody was in an airport, the Hari Krishnas yeah. would be. Which I think was would probably be around. based in fact. I think in L.A. and places they would hang out there because you know suckers would fly in and give them some money and yeah, you know. But yeah, it's too bad no one did a Thunderdome match between Mimes and Harry Krishnas. Right? <laughs> oh man, we got our first GGTMC production right there. Yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> be amazing. I'm gonna uh, cast Jake as the mom though. Jake and uh, Doctor Zahn will be the lead Harry Krishna. And oh, that'd be amazing. We'll go with that, and we can make Oper- Oberholzer the Master Blaster. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, but yeah, uh, there's anything else that we want to add here. I like the little town feel. I think it's great because uh, you don't quite know where it is and when it is. Um, yeah, I'm a sucker for small towns. I love small towns. As a matter of fact, when I travel, whenever I travel, unless I'm going to see people, uh, if I travel to, uh, you know, I was in Florida last year. I always try to go find like remote, like little thousand, two thousand population towns. I always love the feel of Small towns. Oh, big. It can town. be tricky though because sometimes there's poverty there, so you got to kind of got to watch yourself. Yeah, it's it's you. Yeah, it's a fine balance, certainly. Um, the frog looks great in this, like we had talked about. Um, and I love this is a very Canadian reference, but there is a show. It was huge. I mean, it was it was a pop culture sensation. I'm sure even some Americans might know about it. Um, but I mean, it's an institution here. It's called the Hilarious House of Frightenstein. Oh yeah, I've heard I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually put some of this stuff out on DVD. I think. Yeah, it's really great stuff. I love it. But there's one of the characters. He's like this old man, and when Marceau was like the old man in this, with like the the makeup that kind of like went over his oh, eyes, almost. Yeah, yeah. Totally reminded me of Hilarious House of Frightenstein. Yeah, yeah. Because I had read an article on Frightenstein. There was a big write up in Rumorg magazine. Yep. About Frightenstein and Rumorg's a Canadian based magazine. For those who don't know. Toronto-based, actually. Yeah, yeah, they are. In and uh, um, they had a big uh, spread on it and stuff, and I had never heard of it, so I'm always fascinated with, you know, what cultural things another country might have grown up on. And oh, man. That yeah. was kind of like, you know, one of y'all's uh, kind of like, yeah, like our, like, uh, kind of like our TV kind of spook show host type things. That was kind of like one of y'all's. Oh, yeah, it was, it was huge, man. It was huge. It was yeah. for kids. I mean, it was, we didn't have, I always feel sad, like, all you guys get to talk about your regional horror hosts, and we didn't really, I guess, to, to my knowledge. I mean, you know, I grew no, up I think the only regional horror host you guys had was the Frightenstein stuff, I think. Yeah, which, you know, was uh, was huge. I mean, it was an institution. Yeah, it was around for a while, too. I think it was the same guy that played most of those characters, right? Yeah, yeah, it was, I believe so. You know, the, yeah, there was the name, Dracula and the, the Igor, yeah. the ball. Yeah, it was, it was cool, man, very cool. Yeah, but I remember in that spread, there was a picture and the old man character did look like that. This old man character, yeah, totally did. Yeah, because totally. this is not real fancy makeup in Shanks. This no. almost looks like a, like a, uh, like a funhouse rubber mask with a little bit of uh, putty paint. Totally, <laughs> it's not real fancy. I was actually kind of surprised at how cheap they went with the, the but old kind, man makeup. It kind of works though, because it, it's almost it like, does. It almost like it pulls back the curtain, much like we see Marceau pulling the strings on the puppets above. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It kind of works for me somehow. Um, yep. You know, 
Marceau's great. You know, the couple that also were pro mimes were great. But can you imagine? Because there's a few moments when Marceau kind of dances. Can you imagine Marcel Marceau break dancing? Yeah. <laughs> it would have been amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I'm going to Google wow. Marcel Marceau break dance when we're done the show. <laughs> it could be amazing. Yeah, you could find a real gym there. Oh, man. Like some French TV in like 81. Um, I'll tell you what else this reminds me of. When you and I spoke about this, a little bit of Scooby-Doo, a little bit of EC yeah. Comics, a little bit of Dr. Fibes. Mm-hmm. Yep, a little bit of all those things. Yeah. I'm still kind of – I don't want to give away anything. I still kind of wrap my head around the ending. I don't really know how that – I don't know what that ending's really trying to do. No, no. Because um, it's going one way, and then it kind of goes back to this kind of bookend. But, it, you know, it almost feels like, well, I can't really say anything. I don't want to say yeah. anything. I don't want to run it for anybody. But I, I feel like while this isn't a perfect film, um, I feel no, like it's perfect, no, no, no. perfect GGTMC fair in that yeah. it's a fascinating setup in terms of, you know, we're at a party. We yeah. see Zach Kelly. We say, Zach. You ever hear about that film William Castle directed? It was his last film, and Marcel Marceau starred in it. And you know, it just—it's that kind of conversation piece, and it's yeah. too arty for the horror crowd, and too kind of weird macabre for like the art house crowd. So when you get people like our listeners who love both, mm-hmm. you know, it's like and it it's too—it's too kind of obtuse too for yes. like the standard like totally movie watcher right like totally. it's, it's a little too even like a tales from the crypt fan it might be a little too kind of obtuse oh yeah yeah i would say so uh, absolutely. And a little odd because it is there there is a really strange vibe i don't know i mean but nowadays you know tim burton's sense of macabre is, is really very much Mainstream. socially and culturally accepted so maybe now this would play better nowadays who would have thought you know we've said this many times but i mean most of the shows on tv are about like 20-something vampires and shapeshifters and Monster High is like a huge show for girls. It's like Monster yeah. High has replaced Barbie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids, I mean, kids are fascinated with the supernatural. And right that now. comes from kind of that EC Comics, Tim Burton thing. I mean, it mm-hmm. really, which Tim Burton then before that EC Comics and so forth. Um, how about that? There's a great fucking Plymouth Barracuda in this film. Oh, man. One of my favorite cars of all time. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Um, I got someone else going to shave him down here. Brr, brr, brr. We had a wacky field montage. Um, <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, the set design's good. Kind of, I feel like it's very classic, um, heightened sense of artifice. Like, again, this is where we get the Scooby Doo thing, like paintings on the wall with eyes that move, cobwebs. You know, all this stuff. I like that. Yeah. And some of it feels almost like Marceau's character has been put upon, so it's like a wet dream for someone that's been put upon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is good. That's what I'm saying with the ending. There's some elements there that I'm still trying to process, or maybe I need to rewatch it. Maybe I missed something. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, you and I had said, you know, while it's not a great film, I think it it would bear repeat viewing sort of every three or four years. And it's, it's an interesting enough piece, even if, much like our last one, we can say it, there's parts where it kind of floats along aimlessly. It feels like. Yeah, this one this one does have moments that float, and they, I gotta admit there was there were some moments like like I said they spent a good chunk of the movie a third of the movie I think with kind of this you know uh, showing us all these tricks they can do with the electrodes, and I think that's great like it's a great like showpiece for those other moms and things, mm-hmm. but at some point I started to get really kind of bored with that, yeah, and really wanted the story to move along, and thankfully that's when the bike gang showed up, but. 
who would have thought Larry Bishop would save a movie? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. Don <laughs> but, uh, no offense, no offense Larry, if you're listening. <laughs> yes. Um, but who would think that he would save a movie of all people? But I really feel like that gang was so desperately needed, and it, it came. It just didn't come at the right time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't as reliable as Ron Jeremy or Peter North. It was more <laughs> like uh, Randy West and kind of uh, sputtering out there. That's right, man. But uh, either way, it it – that that some of that stuff in the middle, while I did like some of the kind of whimsy of it, yes. I did at some points kind of get a little almost like well, I mean, I'll just be honest with you, I, frankly I got there's parts in the middle where I got bored. Yep. I was like, come on, man, we gotta move this story along. I get it, you know, he's really good with these electrodes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, exactly. No, for sure. For sure. I think for me it's charming enough um to get me through it, but um in saying that yeah, it does Ooh. Just wears out its welcome after a while, you know what I mean? Oh, I think I might have found something. Oh, I might have found something. <laughs> you found a Marcel breakdancing? I might have. Oh, boy. It's just didn't Michael Jean-Claude Van Damme do some... Uh, no, he did ballet training. He didn't do mime training. Yes, that's oh, right. Man. Let all me right. look at this. Okay, I'm going to let jump over you for make or breaks and MPTs and all that. All right, my make or break for this. Uh, I had a hard time picking one, but I mean, I got to go with the motorcycle gang. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's heart and soul, what this show has always been about, and it's both uh, tasteless and tacky and yet fun and silly and you know it, it's it's really ridiculous this motorcycle gang talk the movie feels like it's out of place out of time this motorcycle gang feels like it doesn't even belong in this time no <laughs> it's just it's so bizarre it comes out of nowhere the cast is insane you know, we've already talked about that it's just it's weird it, it feels like the death wish rape scene but like a bad idea version of that or something yeah it's very yeah. strange uh, my MVT for this, I'm going to go with Marceau. I mean, yeah. he didn't do a whole lot of films, but he's central to this one. And he's, I got to say, he's, uh, you know, mesmerizing to watch. He is. Uh, he does a lot with his face, a lot with his, he's always kind of giving me a little bit of a, you know, who else, uh, you know, uh, doesn't really get kind of credit for the kind of mime-like things he used to do. But, you know, Harpo Marx. Oh, man, I love, yeah, Harpo's and, great. And, and Marceau, they've always, in some ways, in their faces, they've always kind of looked similar to me sometimes. Yeah. If you uh, see a close-up of Harpo and you look at a close-up of Marceau, you can see some similarities in some of the stuff they do. I fucking love Harpo, man. Because there's a tinge in Harpo, as goofy as the kind of Harpo thing is. Yeah. There's a tinge of cruelty in some of Harpo's stuff, right? Yeah. A, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's a small tinge. But you, every now and then you kind of get this kind of evil, like little boy kind of manic comedy from Mischief. Harpo. Even with uh, Chico, there's some too. Oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah, you know, yeah. and I love. I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite Marx brother, man. They're fucking amazing. Oh yeah, no, obvious statement of the night, but you know they had. <laughs> yeah. a, did you know they had a? Did you know they had a sibling named Gummo Marx? Yeah, they had Gummo Marx and they had Zeppo, know. right? Zeppo, yeah, I know, I know Zeppo. I always knew Zeppo. I never knew Gummo. Yeah, Zeppo was kind of the heartthrob of the group, right? He was kind yeah. of the. Uh, Kind of looked uh, pretty normal, the normal-looking yeah, yeah. Marx brother. Yeah, that's right, man. Never knew Gummo, man. Gummo was like the gray beard. I don't remember. I don't remember much of Gummo, but I'd have to look into that. I've, you know, obviously, it's been a long time since I looked at Marx brother movies. But. He was an American vaudeville performer, criminal investigator, and theatrical agent. He was. Oh, it says weird. It says he was the second youngest, and to me, it looks like the oldest. But I don't know. who was the youngest? Zeppo. Uh, let's see if it was Zeppo. Very quickly. Yep. Okay, I thought Zeppo might have been. Yeah. Zeppo, like I said, they kind of sold Zeppo as the, kind of like the heartthrob straight man. Yeah, I think Chico was the oldest, if memory serves. I, mean, was, can I, yeah, I think it was Chico, then Harpo, then Groucho. So probably. 
yeah, William, I think I told you, watched Day of the, Ra- Day of the Races. He really enjoyed it. Yeah. The, the Marx Brothers, yeah, you got to be you got to be on your game to watch Marx Brothers comedy because, I mean, there's jokes there, 100 jokes a minute. lying at you. Yeah, they just come at you a thousand in a minute. And I used to love them growing up, and I still love them now. I just haven't revisited them in a long time. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so I'll go with uh, Marcel for the MBT. That's a pretty obvious choice, but you know, Castle, I feel like, has made better films. I mean, he's not yeah. – he was never a – and I'll say this forthright. It might make some people upset. He's not, William Castle was not a genius filmmaker, but he was a genius showman of a filmmaker. Yes. In other words, I don't think he ever made a masterpiece, in my opinion. No, but he made people go to the movies. He was important and, for yeah. He was important yeah. just because he didn't make a masterpiece doesn't make him any less important to yeah. film and horror film and uh, drive-in culture and that whole thing. Yeah, not a master filmmaker, but a pivotal part of the whole movement of horror films. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, my score for this film this might sound a little low, but like I said, there were some serious lulls in this for me. But I'm going to give it a 6.75 out of 10. Fair enough. That's very fair. I mean, it is rewatchable. I'll visit, revisit it again some point. I'll show it to some people who might have an interest in this kind of thing. I got a few friends who are interested in this kind of stuff, that EC Comics type bent you were talking about. Yep. Um, I'll show it to a few friends who want to see a crazy biker gang. I got a few friends who like that kind of stuff in their movies. <laughs> so if at the very least, I'll be watching that ending again. But, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's, it's solid, but... No, it, I'd say it's you know that that's about as fair as I can give it a uh, score because I just don't feel like it it quite gets into that seven territory and it certainly doesn't get to the eights. No, 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 definitely not. Um, okay, cool. My make or break. I'm gonna go with the first scene when we kind of see like we see him doing the puppetry from above and it's kind of mesmerizing. It just kind of mesmerized me and kind of gave it, it set the table for this kind of dreamy fairy tale feel. Um, and like I said, Marceau, is, he's a good looking older man that has, just has it, you know, yeah, he was, some, uh, he was what, like 50 something when he did this? Yeah. Yeah. He was late fifties, got the ascot going and, you know, he's oh, kind of yeah. very quiet, but just his face was very expressive and so much going on. Obviously Marceau, although I wanted to go with, uh, the Calpha Bishop, uh, connection, uh, it's gotta be Marceau. I mean, he's amazing. I mean, the, the, the mime work in this is tremendous, but Marceau is great. My score is a little higher than yours. I, I was really charmed by this, um, more of an interesting film than, than you know, great film. It's I'll give it a seven point two five. Nice, you know, yeah, great double bill film. Like I, if I was to program a double bill, this and Edward Scissorhands would be great together. Yeah, or just yeah, just like I said, this is way off, off the beaten path. I want to tell you just because we were talking about Harpo. <laughs> Do you know that uh, Harpo is was inducted into the United States Croquet Hall of Fame in nineteen seventy nine? Nice. I didn't even know there was a croquet hall. He, he had a special cold room built in his house for keeping his mallet collection free from potential humidity damage. Wow, he was that fucking guy. Love croquet. He he was to croquet mallets what John Travolta is to bad hair pieces. Yeah, exactly. got that temperature controlled room. His hair. Yeah. Speaking of which, Harpo's hair was a wig. He was completely bald. He was buddies with Mahalia Jackson, the singer, and she met him. She was stunned that he was bald. Yeah, I've seen pictures of him without the hairpiece um, in the past. He almost looked like Uncle Fester in some pictures I'd seen him uh, from the Adams Family. But uh, Oh, man. Yeah, he's a genius. Genius uh, comedian actor. Uh, did a lot with a horn and uh, a hat and a oh, wig. He was great, man. Just look at his face. Harpo back JFK, everybody. 
Oh yeah, amazing! I need advertised Pepsi. I got to look for some. I'm looking for Marceau breakdancing, fucking Harpo <laughs> Pepsi commercial. It's gonna be a busy night. <laughs> oh, and Labatt's beer, man. Yeah, amazing. I think croquet thing is uh, <laughs> baffling to me right now. I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, who goes that extra mile to keep their croquet mallet safe? <laughs> He's on another level, man. Yeah, me croquet was always that game that we kind of just, you know, you, I, I had to always find the pieces because we just threw everything in the garage. Oh yeah, and mine was chaos at best. <laughs> and we were he, lucky to have two sticks. Oh yeah, I mean, there was no wickets, man. I was just smashing balls overhand and. So we would take the croquet, we would take the the sticks, and we would, you know, make a, you know, like like uh, like Daredevil's billy clubs. Oh yeah. You know, we would make uh, kung fu weapons out of those. So if somebody else had a a croquet set, and we weren't really playing croquet because you know kids don't really play. I mean. No, you had off for two if, minutes. Yeah, I don't know if any kids play croquet or badminton or any of those kind of games, yard games nowadays. I don't even know if anybody plays that stuff anymore. We've we have a badminton set, but it doesn't get used. Yeah, badminton's fun. It's fun game. It is fun. Yeah. But you know, it's just it's it 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 seems like a game that's time may have passed. Yeah. And uh, it's always kind of striking to me that there's not professional. Is there professional badminton like there is ping pong? Oh, I'll tell you what, man. There is a, much like ping pong, uh, Japan and China they represent. Yeah, and it's insane, isn't it's it? Intense. I think I've seen it before. It's intense. Yeah, it's like really insane badminton. It's like <laughs> oh, I'd be humiliated so bad. <laughs> Minton. <laughs> You'd be so humiliated, so badminton. Oh. so badminton. <laughs> and let me tell you something, people. Harpo practiced the harp on the toilet. That's very GGTMC. That is. That is. That's a good place. That's a good harp introspective place toilet. to. Yeah, that's a good introspective place to practice the toilet. If I mean, I, the, the harp. To do both, you can practice the toilet there too, man. Uh, yeah, sure. You can practice your bowel movements as well. I guess. You gotta get Zama harp. <laughs> <laughs> Harpo uh, is the uh, croquet mallets. As Travolta is the hair faces. As Zama is to. Questionable porn and good soaks. <laughs> good soaks, yeah. Pubic hair in the bath drain, there, babe. Yeah, man, that's right. Uh, we're gonna jump off here. This is gonna keep spiraling into non sequiturs. Um, yeah, you don't want us. You don't want us to just click on random links on the internet and discuss. Well, we could go on for hours. Yeah, that's right. We do want to thank Olive once again for sponsoring our show, and and again, not to pound this home too much. I think it's what's really worth um, mentioning again is how varied their catalog is. Two films that we'd never heard of that were, while not masterpieces, they were kind of um, really under yeah, the radar. One of them was close, though. One of them was close. One of them was close. Tobruk, yeah. yeah. And one of them was fascinating nonetheless. A great conversation piece. And we got some so. good stuff coming up, too. I picked... Uh, oh, yeah. Well, the ones I picked, there's only one of them I think I haven't seen. Actually, I think I've seen them all. I have seen I, them all. I haven't seen... No, no, no. I them. haven't seen The Quiet Gun. Well, I just said what it was, but Sorry, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen two of them, then. I've oh, that's right. Two. I remember. I remember the other one you hadn't seen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested to see what your take on that is. It's a it's a bizarre little movie. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. That'll be cool. Very cool. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of one of the ones you picked, as you can well guess. Well, yeah, yeah. I think it's well. I, I'd assume you're a fan of two of the ones I picked. As a matter of fact. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. So. Well, that'd be good. You have a lot of fun. A lot of good stuff coming down the pipes from here. Olive. Yeah, we got a good diabolic show coming up. We got all kinds <laughs> of fun stuff coming. Yeah, we totally do. Um, all right, so that's the big show. Next week, um, I'm going to check real time here to see if this person's gotten back to us yet. Uh, oh, he hasn't been on Facebook. We might have a show with a good friend. If we do not, we are going to be bringing you a heavy, heavy sponsored show. 
It's going to be like a marathon. We are going to cover more films in one show than we've ever done in the history of this show. We're going to try something crazy. Yeah. We've never done this. If 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 this other thing doesn't, which by the way, we need to find out as soon as possible. Because yes, because the clock is ticking. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do. So you, you can tell people. I mean, you want to tell people what we're covering, or you want to tell them how many films we could potentially be covering. We wait. could be covering seven films from Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah, seven folks. It's crazy seven. enough. It just might work. Yeah, it's gonna be wacky. It's gonna move. <laughs> <laughs> and if not, we're gonna be taking a trip to Southeast Asia with our good friend Josh. So it's yeah, he wants to bring some uh, some Bollywood our way. Yeah, so, some some uh, film. A genre that we're. Will's more versed in than I am, but we're both criminally uh, under under uh, educated in. Yes, and there's a, f- a few filmmakers I've become very fond of that um, shatter all expectations of Indian film. Uh, oh, there we go, I'm getting excited. <laughs> yeah. Sammy's about to practice his harp on the toilet, man. <laughs> yeah, had to had to put it back up. Yeah, that's You're right. Done podcasting though. But otherwise, we're going to be doing seven films from Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah, I don't know show. if you can name them or what you. I want can to name do. them. We Okay. I'll name them in case we do them, in case we want to play it play along at home. And it's yeah. going to be right quite the grab bag, if you will. Yeah. We're going to be taking a few trips into their Picarama collection. We're going to be doing a couple films from Alex Dorenzi, uh, Little Sisters and Powder Burns. Um, two films from uh, a master of a different kind, Casanova 1 and 2, John Holmes films. Yeah, well, John Holmes on the show. We've well, never John done any John Holmes. <laughs> Making his GGTMC debut. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Little Miss Innocence and Teenage Seductress from the Driving Collection, and Wild Man Steve in Super Soul Brother, which is supposed to be a low rent version of Dolomite. Like, low. <laughs> well, you know, the, the fact that that the selling point is that <laughs> that Super Soul Brother is a low rent version of Dolomite. Yeah. That is a that is a pretty major achievement because Dolomite <laughs> is a pretty like is a pretty low rent movie. Like Dolomite's got the like a fifties MGM musical compared to Super Soul Brother. <laughs> I, I've never seen any of these films, and I gotta say, knowing that that is compared to a low rent Dolomite, I gotta say I'm interested <laughs> to see this, but I am I am completely hesitant to dip my toe in that water too. <laughs> that Wild Man Steve starring role. I have Super affection soul. for Dolomite, but I'll be the fir- I, I've been la- you know laughed off of other shows and I talked about it before. I mean, I don't think I think Dolomite's culturally important. I don't think I it's a great it. movie. I think it's a great movie and culturally <laughs> important. <laughs> <laughs> but if this is the lower end version of that, Man. oh my god, what is what are we gonna watch? <laughs> it's gonna be amazing. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe I'll love it. I don't. I don't. You never know. I've never seen any of these movies, so, so I don't know. So we're gonna have low rent Dolomite. We're gonna have John Holmes in a powdered wig with his cock hanging out. Uh, some artsy Alec Dorenzi and uh, some sleazy driving fare from Vinegar Syndrome. All in a, a week's work. Although I feel like teenage seductress. I don't know who's in that. I feel like I may have seen that before. I feel like I may have lived it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've certainly lived it. I just don't know. If, I don't know if. Uh, I mean, not since I became a legal adult. That's right. Say. That's right. We should clarify that. Uh, yeah. Better clarify that, or I'll be in a powdered wig of a different sort. <laughs> like a powdered donut with a glazed center, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man, Sandra Curry. I don't know. If you know you. We'll find out next week. Directed by uh, Chris Warfield. So. Yeah. So we'll do some vinegar syndrome. Yeah. Let me. Reached out to them. We haven't done any of their stuff in a while. We kind of 
lost touch with him after the the great email fiasco of a couple of years back, and so we kind of got back on base with him stuff, and we'll uh, do some stuff. They got some good stuff out there, so we'll see if any of this is uh, some of the stuff you guys should be checking out. That's right, or if you should be wearing some powder wigs while making love. <laughs> we shall see. Seems so unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> well, some might say it seems very, so unnecessary and yet very necessary in the words yeah. of Mighty Fabian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Indeed. Captain Kool-Aid himself. Yeah, man. So we're going to jump <laughs> off here uh, because we're going to keep spinning our wheels and and cackling. So uh, it's either going to be two films from uh, Southeast Asia or seven films from... Uh, <laughs> Vinegar syndrome. Vinegar syndrome. Yeah. Yes. It's and a real, which, it's a real, real roll of the dice here. It's either two films or seven films. <laughs> that's With a the lack of time I've had lately. And the funny thing is, it's two films from Bollywood, which is potentially. Yeah, I know they're not going to be seven this round, but as somebody, as somebody could tell you, we could watch seven Vinegar Syndrome films before we could watch one and a half Bollywood films. That's true, man. Some of those <laughs> films go on forever. They're stuffed to the gills. Yep. So we shall see. But uh, in any event, <laughs> there is only one thing left to say. I just mimed adios. <laughs> adios. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 